Welcome to the Weekend Sportscast, brought as always to you by the good folks at Cooper Tyres and the equally good folks at the Justice Brothers. Uh, I'm Graham Goodwin. This is the Marshall Pro Podcast with, of course, uh, for reasons I don't know very many of you are aware, uh, without Marshall for probably the next couple of weeks. We wish well to both he and, of course, to his lovely wife, Shabral. Uh, but with apologies a little later than usual this week for Twisk, the week in sports cars, uh, I've been off web, I'm afraid, the last couple of three days down in Paul Ricard. Uh, we're going to make up for that, though, with a bit of a bumper bundle of Q&A questions from all of you out there in Twitter, Facebook, Reddit land. And joining me again is my deputy editor from Delhi Sports Car, also Racer.com's WC correspondent, Stephen Kilby. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Graham. I'm back on the pod. Back on the pod. And it's a glorious morning here in the UK. We're here in uh, DSC headquarters. It's an impressive structure. It's not shed. Uh, It's an impressive structure. Kind of semi... Kind of, uh, well, what would you call it? It's kind of almost underground, almost like kind of. It's a lair. It's a lair. It's a lair. Let's it's a lair. Okay, a the jet fighter we keep parked at the back. Don't tell people about that. That's a secret. It's a secret airbase. That's a secret airbase. We're going to go for it though. There is a massive uh, quantity of questions. Seventy-seven, actually. Seventy-seven this 77. week. Let's see how many of those we can get through. I think it's fair to say that a fair number of them have got the same three letters involved. And that is S, M, and P. So, Stephen, we're going to start this week with WEC, uh, Aslam's, Elms, Echo, uh, which is our kind of not very shorthand for the WC, uh, ACO family. Um, SMP and their surprise withdrawal from the WC. What have we got on that? Because I'm sure there is a bumper bundle. I'll just go off, have a cup of tea and a slice of toast while you... Read just, out the names. Of people well, just read out the names of people who yeah. asked about it. Yep, so we've had Stuart Hartz come in, Stephen Gates come in, um, Luke, uh, late, f- late for Apex, uh, David Faulkner, Doug Bonham, Chris Ward, Jakob Ben, Luke Philippone, Damian Peachman, all asking about SMP. I bet there's I more. There's probably more. Um, yeah, we're Floodman Levin. Never heard of him. No, never heard of him either. Um, Tom Bacon, great name. Excellent. Um, yeah, we're just loads. St- uh, Johnny Schultz. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, see what. So, if you, so if let's, you, do a, let's do a bit of a, a what, proper roundup of it. Well, rather than say what. So, have a, you have a quick look through if there's any particular points here while I just explain for anybody that's uh, been under a rock for the last week. What this is about is that S&P Racing and their ART Grand Prix. Uh, backup team uh, announced that they are withdrawing from full season uh, WEC this year having posted two full season entries citing um, that they had effectively achieved all they believed that was going to come from the package and in particular a pretty pointed uh, jab at EOT and the superiority on track of the Toyota's course um, the S&P racing guys with that BR1 Delara uh, chassis and the AR, the latest spec AR P60C engine um, getting on the overall podium at Le Mans the best finish by some distance from the AR engine and what a great kind of period of time they're having with the Mazda success coming as well but Stephen any particular points beyond that or then we can yeah. get into I think most people in this selection of questions are trying to get their heads around how big of a blow this is to the WC for next season and I think they want to get your take on that because we're down to six cars in LMP1 full season maybe by colours for a couple of races they want to know what does it look like next year is it a, a huge deal 
Uh, first things first, I don't think it'll be six. I think it will be fewer than that. I, I think at the moment what, we, what we're likely to get are a number of cars um, in LMP1 and elsewhere that may well show up for individual races. Now, one of the questions is going to be, how can SMP Racing do that? If, you know, you're not allowed to actually enter as a one-off, this is something we got into with the CFC TRSM effort with Janetta, you're not allowed to enter one-off races. Well, they can do that if they pay the fines. If they've, if they've paid a full season entry fee, if they pay the fines for non-appearance, and, you know, I'm hearing from sources within that organisation that there is every possibility rather than probability at the moment there might be a limited programme for one or other or other or both of those cars and it would seem to be that certainly you've got elements within that organisation now that are looking to see what might happen I think more particularly into calendar year 2020 so the latter part of the season let's wait and see whether that can be drawn back the other big question was was this a surprise yes and no I think the answer is, and there's an excellent answer, by the way, to a query on one of the Facebook groups from Andy Cotton, the um, industry chief of race car engineering, talking about um, the, the the run up to the Le Mans 24 Hours and what ART in particular were telling um, the uh, race organisers that they expected to happen. They expected to lose three laps in terms of performance gap to the Toyotas on track. They expected to lose a further three laps in terms of the effectively mandated penalty they get in the pit lane. Something I'm, I have to say, absolutely not in agreement that should be there. I think that's a pointless uh, wrecking tactic. It's it's not required on voyage. That would have cost them six laps over the full race distance. And where did they finish? They finished six laps down. They were spot on. They achieved all they said they could achieve uh, with that performance package and that rules package. And they've basically decided that, therefore, will be that for now, at the very least. So um, it is to do with their feeling that they'd be spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, and let's face it, not a small amount of money, um, competing against... Uh, an opposition in Toyota that just have more than an edge more than the edge they've built into that car an edge by regulation and in answer to the multiple questions that we've got there Stephen the answer is yes that's now out of time Um, it's my view wherever we are the uh, the sole remaining options for full season competition are the two Toyotas one of those cars tested at Paul Ricard uh, this week and was massively impressive again doing full race runs and endurance testing um, Rebellion and we expect that probably only one of those cars will make the full season at this point um, not hearing much in terms of commercial package coming together for the second Janetta will have two cars at the prologue and are working very hard for what could be quite an interesting two-car programme there. So potentially you're talking five. We hope maybe more cars for some of those races. But the interesting part of this is where does that lie in terms of the technologies? Um, because what we've had to this point is an EOT for turbocharged cars, uh, which is another thing, by the way, that SMP believe was incorrect, <coughs> and an EOT for the normally aspirated, the Gibson-powered uh, cars. We've lost one of those as well, of course, with uh, with Dragon Speed going away and with Bicolis having shifted to the Gibson, um, unlikely to be seen in anything other than a smattering of races this year. It does make things simpler in terms of EOT. My view is dead simple. We're moving in 2020, 2021 to balance of performance. Uh, that is widely perceived to be the biggest challenge for hypercar 
and together with the um, the uh, grandfathered LMP1 cars facing the technical side of the powers that be so let's just do BOP now let's just do that let's stop this um, actually now ridiculous uh, level of superiority built into the regulations we get the messaging the messaging is simple this is the most technologically advanced efficient race car on the planet the TSO 50 you've got a world championship you've got two Le Mans wins now let's go racing it really is that simple and there are lots of pluses by the way to moving to a pure balance of performance um, uh, regime for this mixed uh, class of um, non-hybrid and hybrid LMP1s it means lessons can be learned it means that systems can be developed it means that data can be crunched that you come in punching into a situation where you're going to have to balance some of those cars with an absolutely new breed of cars into season 2020-21 rather than just starting from uh, a standing start I'd like to see that happen I'd like to see it happen now will we see it? I have no clue but to me it makes absolute sense to make the change immediately deal with the politics on the fly Toyota are not going to leave they're not going to leave Um, they've come in uh, strong I don't want this to come across as a criticism of them and their efforts I do want this to come across as a criticism of the fact that the political clout that has been um, leveraged here is now at the end of its usefulness to them and everybody else. They need to be seen to be competing. They need to be seen to be racing hard, not just against each other, but against credible opposition from elsewhere. Let's get that done. Do you think that this news has an effect on Rebellion and Janetta's plans for next year? Are they going to be just as heavily pushing to get two cars on the grid now that, you know, now that they know there's going to be two fewer cars? Uh, no, the answer the answer for uh, immediately for Ginetta is actually there is um, a positive. There's a positive in terms of the availability of fresh fresh engines, not just for their testing, but for the race program as well. So you know we've we've uh, seen the car that's been out now for a third test. I think it's something like three thousand kilometres over three tests. One of which was a bit weather affected at Spa. They had the P60B engine oddly enough and you'll see this on DSC I think early next week once we've had a chance to catch up with uh, our good friends at AR um, that one of those engines in fact saw uh, saw duty both in SMP, VR1 and in the Ginetta uh, but I think what you're going to see I know you're going to see is the two Ginettas that will be at the prologue will both be fitted with the latest specification of engines the P60C so far that, that engine had only been seen in the SMP racing uh, effort that was the engine that powered them to that podium and there'll be a lot more detail to come before we get there Rebellion well might there be a little bit of legacy potential fluid um, a budget from somebody there might be I don't think so bearing it you know, in mind what, what I think I know about the drivers that report that effort um, we'll wait and see I think uh, the prologue is going to be very interesting indeed uh, is it bad news it's fundamentally bad news at this stage of the game to lose two top class entries and by that I mean two entries of quality and two entries in the top class it's of course bad news is it uh, a you know a game-ending disaster? No, um, but I think what it has done is to again further focus the WC's uh, view 
on what needs now to happen to sustain this through what's a tricky period for them in advance of their yeah, much vaunted new class coming in next year. I think there's going to be a huge effort now uh, to get further cars onto grids in uh, in terms of you know one off and two and three off uh, efforts. We've seen already some of that kind of coming to the fore with a number of teams asking and being given very positive answers about joining the WC for a number of races uh, for me I think that's a plus I think it's something the WC has lacked in recent years that you know it's a plus in terms of turning up and knowing what you've got a stable series is a good thing but if like you and me you follow this week in week out just coming and seeing the same cars and the same drivers at the same circuits can get a bit samey however good the racing is so just to turn up and find someone actually just you know throwing their hat into the ring for a race or two as Corvette did last year as we saw with uh, to good effect with uh, G-Drive at Spa for instance it's a good thing isn't it mm. oh 100% 100% um, and before we move on I think more more to the point of SMP where does this leave them in sports car racing obviously they've got their Blanc Plan programme but in prototype racing do what, where do we think they're going to be? Are they, is this the end of their, their sort of prototype aspirations? Uh, they've got two cars that are clearly very capable indeed. Uh, you've got Boris Rotenberg, uh, who is, uh, how can we put this, a strong personality. Um, don't count out, by the way, that whilst this is not the reason why they have stopped, there are significant issues that surround the SMP racing effort in terms of the ability to quickly move money around simply because of Boris Rotenberg's personal status uh, in terms of economic sanctions and you know, legacy from uh, all sorts of issues uh, down through the past. Uh, and that goes back years. That goes back to the days when you'll remember, Stephen, um, the LMP2 effort for SMP racing being una- unable, despite the fact that he wanted to, unable for many months to switch to Dunlop Rubber because... Goodyear Dunlop is a US-based company. Uh, so there are sanctions issues around there too. They'll decide what they want to do and they've got the finance available to do it. If something emerges that makes this a more viable proposition, I've little doubt we'll see them back somewhere. Uh, there's lots of questions. It looks like the Blomban programme will continue. We don't yet know whether or not we're going to see S&P racing branding on the AF Corsa GTE Pro cars. We'll see that probably for the first time at the prologue in Barcelona uh, but lots of unanswered questions this is an organisation that puts a lot into motorsport their efforts rival Red Bull in terms of the breadth of the um, the impact that they make in particular promoting young Russian talents that's a good thing you know whatever you think about the the individuals or the businesses involved you know it's a good thing that actually motorsport is being seen as being a platform for them I hope they come back. I really do. Because the, the sadness of it is that, that programme, that product, that car was coming on strong. Um, you know, will we see others stepping into the ring? Let's see what uh, the boys and girls at Garforth uh, Geneta can actually do. I hope we're going to see some exciting racing between them and Rebellion and anybody else that chooses to come on a race-by-race basis. And I really hope that this is a bit of a wake-up call to actually stop um, you know, to, to actually throw back the curtains here and make the big decision and have that conversation with the last remaining factory team and 
make it very clear we want to see some racing and if we get some racing you'll get more tv time you'll get more interest you'll get more people getting excited and it is that that thing about it's very easy to explain to a knowledgeable audience and you know our listening audience and the, the viewing audience for wec is a very knowledgeable audience to explain to them that to get to the point where these cars are getting to to, to go head to head potentially with toyota uh, in clear running um is not only spectacular technological achievement for those privateers but it's meant that there's had to be a sporting decision taken by toyota and by the rule makers to effectively dumb that down because make no mistake that thing that toyota is an absolute juggernaut the fastest car ever at the le mans 24 hours and here's the sadness the second fastest ever was the smp br1 faster than the porsche 919s ever faster than any audi that's ever been there ever and make no mistake while we look at the kind of the distance between the cars in race conditions uh, make no mistake that these cars right now in lmp1 non-hybrid are absolutely awesome yeah they are amongst the fastest sports cars that you or i or anybody else has ever seen mm. tom bacon asks have any of the Ford WC and S&P drivers secured drives elsewhere for next season? I think watch this space. Um, I think you know. I think we might well see a couple of the guys along uh, trying a few seats for size. I'm aware of at least one that we'll probably see at the prologue aboard a car. Whether or not that's going to lead to a full season deal, I don't know. Anybody that listens to our other products, the Inside the Sports Car Paddock, will have heard Stefan Mucker on there. At the moment, Stefan telling me, as, as of last weekend at least, uh, that no, he didn't have uh, any kind of full season uh, plan. But I think we will see them. Luckily, certainly from the Ford point of view, uh, Harry Tinknell is already kind of sorted. He's got his Mazda program and I've no doubt that someone with the talent of Tinks will find his way into somewhere there somewhere as well. Andy Prio, of course, is doing WTCR uh, amongst other things and looking after the career of his, you know, a very promising career of his young son, Seb. Uh, the, the likes of Olivier Pla and Stefan Mockett, I'm sure, will not be idle for very long. Uh, no doubt whatsoever. As for the SMP guys, if I was an aspirant Le Mans, uh, entrant, I might be looking for the phone number for Stefan Sarazan, uh, awesome race driver, but better than that, as a development driver, you know, look at what he did in Will Rally uh, for many years for Pirelli, um, you know, he's driven everything and, and won in most things he's driven. He certainly would be on my uh, wish list. Igor Arudjev, I think, was a coming man there. I think he's a real potential talent. The bigger names. Well, okay, Stoffel van Dorn has other things on his um, to-do list. Uh, whether or not we're going to see the kind of demand for Vitaly Petrov, Mikhail Elishin, I genuinely couldn't say, and Sergei Sorokin, they're all very quick. It's going to be a matter of whether or not S&P money actually assists those guys in something other than what they're already doing uh, that is going to push the brand. John Fullman is also asking a question about next season um, he says he's looking forward to hypercar but he's struggling to find things to get excited about for the 2020-21 season what's the positivity that we can give him um, but 2020-21 um, I think the answer is it's new oh, sorry 19-20 so 19-20 so right um, a lot depends on what they decide to do with the rule book a lot depends on what they decide to do with the rule book and I can understand why people would be 
questioning slash cynical about that. And I think as time goes on, if you're building into regulation the level of edge that you are with the totas, that's less and less excusable. We've got now, the beginning of last season, let's not forget, we had a lot of unknowns. We didn't know how quick these brand new breed of LMP1 cars were. We now do. We didn't know how reliable those LMP1 cars were. We now do. And whilst we had a we had a you know an understanding of how quick the totas were, we didn't know how well or otherwise they would be able to race with the breed of non-hybrid LMP1s. Because it's not just the, the pure performance numbers it's the way in which that performance is delivered it's that punch out the corners it's the punch through traffic it's those kind of things in particular of course when we get into poor weather and we've had a fair share of that this year that's where a car that's able to deploy its power um you know through a four-wheel drive system can really you know punish a more traditional massively rapid lmp1 car so we're not in a situation we were in Spa 2018 now, coming into this season. We know a lot more about these things. And therefore, there are fewer excuses to get it wrong. Therefore, there are fewer... I mean, to my mind, there is no excuse for building in by regulation a situation where the second most rapid car around the Mon ever knows they're going to lose the race by six laps if they have the perfect race. And by the way, they did have the perfect race for that one car. That is not a sensible unacceptable situation and I would like to think that our good friends at Tota feel the same um, for me get rid of the nonsense on pit lane right now get rid of the um, the fact that uh, you, you've got a longer fuel fill right now stop that stop the fact that you've got to have the extra lap stop that if you need to explain that that's better done in the narrative just showing it on track and watching crushing dominance from one against the other. All that's doing is it, it, it's now bleeding support for the top class in sports car racing. Um, and, you know, the, the job is more easily done by the likes of you and me writing it and the likes of me saying it. And that means, for instance, you know, let's say Brendan Hartley, after a tussle in the, the opening um, stint at... Spa Francorchamps comes in with a five, six, seven second gap over, let's say, the Rebellion or the Ginetta. All you need to say about that is brilliant battle. Ultimately, hybrid boost has paid dividends there, and um, the amazing thing there from uh, from the technology point of view is that Brendan did that stint on half the fuel of the car he's battling with. That is progress. That's the message. And that's delivered in five seconds flat, not with a fat rule book. That it's not required. It's a simple matter to explain to an audience. You've got the opportunity to talk to that audience, so talk to that audience. You know, and, and find ways of actually activating that better. Put it on the car. Write it on the side of the car. You know, yeah, it's something along the lines of you know it, the the. the the percentage difference in fuel efficiency between a hybrid and non-hybrid in LMP1 is mind-melting. It is astonishing that they can produce the performance they do with as little fuel as they use compared to what came before. And for me, we just need to take a step. The step needs to come now. And also, you mustn't forget that the GT battle in WC next year, I think, is going to be brilliant. GTM is going to be fantastic, and it was last season. And in pro, with fewer factories, yes, 
it's difficult to say it's going to be exciting with fewer factories but I think if they do a good job of balancing it and we know they can and they we can. know it's going to be easier with only three factories but that's, that's politics all it needs. that's it's politics all it, now that's all, all it needs the, the, all the, it needs is three factories going door to door and it could be brilliant yeah the, the, the you know the one thing you know I would say is fewer factories means less politics means less arguing about the, uh, the I'm afraid the bullshit that we get involved in from day to day racing and that's not a slight uh, uh, you know it's not a kind of a um, uh, hurling a stone at either Ford or BMW but it just means less complication what do I think we'll see in, in GT Pro I think we will see the odd race where maybe we get a third car for some of those teams I think we will see that potentially come along at some points not regularly but I think we might see that when there's a race that is important for their business to business activation whatever it is that they're going to do at those races I think we are still going to see awesome racing um, and what, what, what I would say here is if there is a balance of performance disparity it's going to be a damn sight more obvious with six cars than it would be with ten mm. you know because it's all of a sudden going to be something where um, you know it's readily apparent f- from uh, from what we see on the TV pictures and anybody that's going you know, that, that takes the view that the six cars is an absolute disaster look it's not great we had ten and that's part of this cyclical nature but I would challenge anybody out there that's followed the WEC for as long as you and I have tell me that six cars in an MP1 hybrid was a bad thing that was the most awesome racing I've ever seen in any class of any racing ever and they managed to sustain that for those two three years as the technology just went stratospheric and you know there's a price to pay for that but that was six cars six cars that have been well balanced in a multi-class race no reason to think we can't see that again let's wait and see I think you know I'm not a fan of writing an obituary for a championship before you've seen actually the way this thing pans out let's wait and see what happens at Prologue let's see what happens when we get uh, back to racing again at Silverstone in you know late August and early September for the course of the race and then let's take a view if then it's broken then we, sh- we should expect people to be shouting loud and hard that things need fixing. I can guarantee you this, I'll be amongst the loudest, voice- loudest voices. Anthony Ghosh says, is a single tyre manufacturer for a hypercar a good thing or a bit short-sighted? Um, it's a good thing if you're bringing a balance of performance um, focus to the top class. As less variables, isn't it? Yeah, it's fewer variables. It can assist depending on the commercial model to reduce budgets certainly there's less pressure on uh on the development but we shouldn't lose track of the fact and it's an area where this court it's another area that caught out lmp1 this year that it's not quite that simple uh, because there aren't going to uh, there's either going to have to be tires that suit a four-wheel drive system and one uh, and and uh, one that's not or you're going to have to have different tyres on those cars so single tyre is not the cure-all uh, what the cure-all here is is either having a product that suits equally those two and that's a big ask uh, or that you've got to have tyres that are ideally suited to the package in which case it sort of undermines the position of actually having a single tyre manufacturer it's going to be fundamentally different cars racing in this aren't they fundamentally the same different brand of tyre fundamentally different and I think there's lots more to come on that in terms of just exactly what we might see uh, in hypercar as things move forward and and, you know I am increasingly questioning of whether or not 
we are talking realistically the two subdivisions that are often talked about which is prototype based cars and uh, GT based cars or you know, road going based cars or what I actually think we've got in addition to which we've got the grandfather P1 cars is potential for GT based cars or road going based cars because that's something we haven't so far got I'll come to the reason why I take that position in a minute prototype based cars which is what Toyota have told us they've got and Jim Glickenhouse tells us is what he's doing and the Aston Martin Valkyrie which is altogether different gravy it's completely different you know it's not that is not a road going hypercar the like of which you I or anybody else this side of the you know skunk works at um, Red Bull Racing has ever seen ever that is not a regular hypercar that is an altogether different thing and that I think is going to be an interesting uh, point for the rulemakers to kind of think their way through it's probably got more in common with a race car than a road car um, any road car and you simply will not be able to compare the dynamics of that package with let's say for the sake of arguing a Koenigsegg a Koenigsegg is a hypercar in the, the realest possible sense it's a hyper road car the Valkyrie is a completely different breed everything we've seen from that car and you know it wouldn't have taken a genius it takes a genius to design it but it wouldn't take a genius to work this one through it is massive power but actually what makes that car do what we be- we've been told it will do is the aerodynamic um, focus and that could cause some problems for balancing out the capabilities of those cars be interested to see how they approach for instance the uh, the relative challenges of a full season of WEC and then Le Mans particularly with the aero uh, restrictions are going to be placed on some of those cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, be interesting to see. You you could theoretically, Stephen, see. You know, let's say for the sake of arguing, Toyota absolutely dominate the season, and then the Aston Martin Valkyrie completely cream them up. Absolutely, and yeah. we're going to have similar similar um, problems to navigate navigate that we've got now in LMP1, where you've got hybrids versus non-hybrids as well. Where yep warming the front tyres is a really big issue and it, it'd, be le- it'd be less of an issue coming into the next season with the new Michelin fronts for um, for the non-hybrid cars I think we're going to start to see a big advances there for Rebellion and for Ginetta we've seen a bit of that in testing particularly at Aragon uh, where Ginetta and Rebellion and SMP were given the opportunity to test those new tyres for the first time and there was a definite step and that is about by the way uh, to explain that, that point the current tyres that are used on the LMP1 cars are designed for the Toyota and because that can deliver that delivers power through the front wheels it means it can get more temperature into the front tyres more quickly and over this season the non-hybrid cars have struggled to get the temps up to into the operating window the new Michelin fronts in particular um, are designed to get to that operating uh, window at much lower operating temperatures and let's wait and see what that means in terms of performance and what that means in terms of the longevity of those those tyres. But there are lots of exciting little tweaks coming into this. Yet don't think it's the, the, the uh, it's not a full reset into 2019-20, uh, but there's plenty of little tweaks that are coming into this that mean that what you saw at the start of last season is not what you're seeing coming into this season. Not all of it good. We, you know, the S&P bit is one part of that. But uh, there's a lot of hard work been going on, and whilst 
had this conversation yesterday with uh, one of the engineering guys that was at the test of uh, Paul Rickard. And, you know, he said, you know, we know that when you come away from here, the first question you're going to be asked if people know you've been there is what were the lap times like? And the lap times were pretty irrelevant, perfectly competitive, but pretty irrelevant. What was actually going to be testing like that was learning a lot more about tyres, learning a lot more about systems, working through those little tweaks that have been made through the three tests that that car has had, the development that the factories put into, the charity factories put into those those cars, that mean that little niggles that can come and bite you in race conditions um, have been dealt with. I'm delighted to say that it was three, three days, aside from torrential rain uh, for about two hours at the start of day one, it was blisteringly hot. And throughout those three days, absolutely not one reliability problem with that Janetta AR, uh, which, you know, bearing in mind the limited running it had had, I think is pretty impressive stuff. Slightly different note now from Matthias Longo. He says, I've been wondering about the relation between money and lap times around the circuit de la Sarte. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but the budget expected for the car career is around 20 to 30 million euros for two cars. And the lap times are expected to be around 330 at Le Mans. What thrills me is that the, an LMP2 car costs around 3 million euros per season and is lapping 325. Sorry, but these numbers don't match in my head. Why, why would they make someone spend five times more than an LMP2 team to run slower laps? Thanks for all the content um, during the week prior to Le Mans and during the race week. Um, stay strong, Chabral. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's a fair question, but I think you know, three million is at that date. I think it's moved up a little from that. Uh, my real, uh, I seem to recall it was about 3.2 to 3.4 million three years ago. So it'll have gone up probably close to four now for a full season for you know a decently operated P2 car. The point still remains. What they're trying to do here is to provide a formula that is attractive to manufacturers and they're responding to the feedback they were getting from people within the industry as well as outside of uh, you know motorsport and the fan base as well that what you needed was relevant technology and that's a key thing there relevant technology but also um, that you had some semblance of visibility of the brand and that's a tricky one to deliver and this is where you get into DPI and DPI 2.0, etc., etc. I know that comes up later, so we'll, we'll deal with DPI 2.0 later. So hypercar was always based around those guiding principles, as well as reducing budgets and the opportunity or the necessity for kind of sky-high vertical development curves. So principally, this is around brand identity. That's why LMP2 doesn't work for that because they don't look like a insert name of car manufacturer that might come and do it uh, brand identity some technological ref- uh, uh, relevance hence the hybrid tech and in answer to those people that say hybrid's not relevant anymore bullshit it's absolutely relevant um, you pop along to any motor dealer anywhere in the world and you'd do well not to find at least some hybrid solution amongst their product range uh, and why does it cost so very much more? You're dealing with an absolutely brand new uh, class of uh, race car. Uh, that has to take into account development from the ground up. There's all sorts of things that were built into that formula that mean that you are dealing with literally everything having to be new. There might be the odd carry across 
component from Toyota from their hybrid systems, but it won't be very much. Uh, entirely new tubs, entirely new aero, entirely new everything, and that comes at a cost. Um, and is it is racing more expensive at a factory level than it is for a privateer? Yes, it is, because there are various things you need to build into that. You don't just go racing for racing's sake. You go racing uh, to either looking for you know your R and D. That's less likely to be the case in hypercar now but certainly to activate that brand in terms of marketing side of things. That's why Hypercar exists, because if you're going to sustain the major international events that, uh, that, uh, you know, that the ACO, the WEC, uh, want to, uh, then you need those manufacturers to be spending money in the pit lane, around the track, in the paddock, outside of uh, the racetrack. Uh, that's what it means to, to attract those kind of brands. Um, so... I get the point. You know, what we've already seen with the LMP1 cars, by the way, is that you can produce ultimately the very similar level of performance in a completely different technological way. In order to do that, they've had to be given a bit of a buy, by the way, in, in the regulations to get them where they are, those LMP1 cars. The LMP2 cars are massively impressive for performance they deliver, um, you know, against the, the cost but let's not kid ourselves that three to four million per WC season is effectively uh, being paid for by private individuals uh, and you simply would not be able to get those private individuals for the most part stepping up you know not just you know twofold tenfold uh, that's the key here uh, to making these things sustainable will we see some privateers in uh, hypercar, yeah, we're going to see some privateers in a hypercar. Make no mistake about that. If this thing flies, then you'll see the odd, uh, the odd hypercar um, privateer team. But uh, is there a direct comparison with LMP2? In pace and in pace alone. And the other thing, by the way, is let's not forget the difference between race pace and qualifying pace. Race pace for the LMP2s is not 325. Um, they can sustain that with a top driver on a uh, flying lap um, there's a point to be made here about the other big news story by the way that's broken since we asked for questions and I'll come back to that in a moment to do with United Autosports Oracle Legia etc um, but you cannot sustain that over a full uh, race stint and expect to get the longevity from the package, the tyres the fuel load that you're going to require to win an insurance race I'll make that, I'm just coming back to that point because I do want to talk a little bit about the United Autosports story. This is that uh, from, from a customer request, United Autosports WC program will switch from the Ligier chassis that the team has campaigned everywhere um, in their uh, LMP2 program since 2017 to an Orica in uh, WC only. That is going to be the customer here is clearly uh, going to be Philip Hansen and family. Um, that's absolutely down to them. The, the point I wanted to respond to is a little bit of internet chatter about uh, filling the gaps here. The, the Ligier is a bad car. No, it isn't. Okay. Applying the same logic from the last question. To put that into context, the Ligier, uh, which was on the podium last year at Le Mans, has won races in the uh, LMS, was just off the podium this year at Le Mans, um, yes, was beaten by three Oricas, but beat nine of them. Um, 
and if we want to talk just pure pace the Ligier LMP2 has qualified I think I'm right in the last in all three years of its existence the fastest of those Ligiers has always qualified faster than any Rebellion R1 the last breed of LMP1 car ever did so they are significantly ahead in terms of pace of the prior breed of Orica based LMP1 that's a mark of how fast things have progressed in terms of aerodynamics in terms of the engine technology in terms of the tyre technology it never stops and you know that's why these things are called prototypes spec they may be to a degree but it doesn't stand still it hasn't stood still and we'll see the next jump forward um, to respond to what happens in terms of hypercar that's still to be still to be seen we've got a moment now for them to get the package right where we are whilst hypercar progresses we of course have then got to have uh, where LMP2 goes gripped because that does have a knock on effect in terms of the pace from those cars which by the way you know I've said this to you many times I think I've said it on the podcast many times it was always my um, my thought that the LMP2 cars as a pro-am formula they were too quick from 2017 onwards that, that is a massively rapid race car massively rapid race car and I always thought they were a little bit too quick uh, I think there's things you can do sensibly to assist that transition to hypercar slash LMP2 what I don't want to see is them absolutely battered out of existence because that make no mistake everywhere rather than IMSA which is a completely different question has been a successful introduction of a class mm. Jakob Bam on Facebook says Le Mans is getting more cramped year after year with oversubscriptions for VLMS growing numbers um, from Asian Le Mans and car car incoming seemingly somewhat large, larger numbers than what we've got cooking for P1 in 1920 the question is could you see the WC evolving into WSPC with Le Mans still being the main event and a grid consisting of car car DPI 2.0 global P2 as a prior category this would of course mean you'd need a, a separate championship for GT cars but it would make for very much needed room in paddocks in all the ACO back series blimey that's, 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 a, that's a huge set of questions let's, let's go with there is a simple truth here if if hypercar ends up being a smash hit in year two, year three, then you've got a whole different set of questions. Uh, there's no doubt at all that they've got an embarrassment of riches in terms of numbers right now for Le Mans, uh, through exactly the points that you actually raised, Jacob. Um, and that, that looks set to continue for at least another year, maybe two years, with the health of LMP2 and the relative health at the moment of GTM. Um, yes, there's questions about the future health of GTE and what might happen there. And frankly, I have had a question about that as well. The future of GTE. Well, we'll come back to that at that point. In which case, uh, but it comes right down to. Let's put it this way: if forget year one for a moment, forget 2019, 2020, because we broadly know what we've got there. Um, definitely four cars. Very, very likely. Um, Five with at least one privateer, uh, Aston Martin. I'm hoping that Jim uh, can bring the Glickenhaus, which would give you seven. That's a pretty good first stab if we if we manage to get to that. If Bicolas turns up, 
That's. I mean, I, mean, I know, but yeah. but, but yeah. you know, they 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 have brought plaster grits. So, yeah. yeah, I know, but they have. But 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 let's say five to seven cars in year one, and let's say for a moment. And by the way, anybody thinks that's a lot yet, let's say, let's say we might get um, insert number DPI manufacturer. Same thing. Let's say. Let's say someone else comes for year two. Let's say two uh, organisations come for year two and you get into double figures. That's more than sustainable. What you've then got to do is to sustain a very healthy LMP2 cabal behind that because you clearly want to support what you've got in terms of a ladder system for teams and drivers uh, moving onwards and upwards leaves you with two questions the ongoing relationship with IMSA we'll come to the IMSA the DPI thing in a moment and of course the health of GT and we'll come to that with a separate question again I think the opportunity for DPI comes if we get a bit of a struggle with hypercar if we get a bit of a struggle with hypercar and if that seven cars becomes four and if year two stays at four and maybe moves to five or six at that point maybe there's an opportunity for someone with a bit of vision um, you know maybe a John Doonan to say okay we know that potentially our cars are quicker we'll take the hit we'll apply BOP to the WC grid okay Ultimately, what it comes down to is, look, we we love our sport. Fast is good. Going faster and faster year by year is something that we all relish. But if in this extraordinary time in automotive and motorsport history, we have to take a hit to maintain what we've got, I'm here to say I think that's a price worth paying. If we have to put up with race pace being... 330, which probably means actually, by the way, that qualifying pace is going to be at or quicker than the current LMP2 pace. There's nothing wrong with current LMP2 pace at the moment for qualifying. But if that's what we have to do to still have fast, loud cars at Le Mans 24 hours for another four, five, seven, ten years, that's a price worth paying. That's why I um, put in the effort that I do that uh, Delhi Sports Car puts the effort in that we do same with racer.com is we want to go and see exciting cars going wheel to wheel um, have they got problems moving forward no they've got options and there's a difference they took one option this year by offering those two additional places they recognised the importance right now this this unique window right now of the professional race teams that run the program classes and they accommodated two more of those that will have been for one reason and one reason only money they bring finance to that race and there's nothing wrong with that either do they lack at the moment the level of manufacturer involvement that IMSA does yes but it's a bit simpler for IMSA IMSA is dealing with manufacturers in one market where they're an established player and they're not having to deal with those manufacturers, importers um, across international and global boundaries. They are dealing with the US end of Mazda, the US end of Acura, the US end of Chevrolet. Um, 
And that is an altogether simpler way in which you've either got a good enough product or you don't. And their product is superb. Okay, but it's impressive when you go to a major IMSA event to see the level of manufacturer activation, and that has to change, particularly in the WEC, particularly in the WEC. And there's something incumbent there, not just on the WEC, but on the manufacturers themselves. And you know, I've certainly been critical of one or two of the manufacturers for just being invisible when they're there. It's all very well bringing two lovely shiny race cars, but you know, I want to care and I'm given limited reason to care about your products if there's no one to engage with if I'm bringing my family to the racetrack. So could we see an opportunity for DPI in a BOP future at Le Mans? Yeah, and you know what? And you've heard me say this before on Twisk. I hope there is. Am I convinced that we're quite at that point yet? No. Um, And oddly, the point at which that might become the most possible is the point at which hypercar hits a bit of a glass ceiling Michael Hogan uh, sorry Mikhail Hogan on Facebook says I'd like to hear more about discussions about the future of GT and GTLM why it isn't a possibility for the Ford GT to be run as a private entry for Keating there is a possibility for um, the uh, Ford GT to be run as a a private entry for Ben Keating Uh, the the issue is going to be where you run uh, if that if that's an IMSA question, and I think it possibly is an IMSA question, the problem for Ben is both. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it is whether or not there's the op- opportunity for there to be a kind of pro am subclass of GTLM. Mm. That's something that are numbers, are there? Absolutely. Ben told me he doesn't think there are either. So uh, there you go. Spend I the think money. he wouldn't spend the money if all he's in is a class of one. Um, you know, Ben is an awful lot of things. Most of them are extremely good. What he isn't is a pot hunter. And what that, by the way, that's a phrase for our international audience is a driver slash team that goes and does the easy thing just to come away with a trophy. Mm. Uh, that's not Ben Keating at all. That does seem remote, it's not remotely on the same planet as Ben. So what will he do with that for? I hope he brings it to Europe. I truly do. I hope it comes to the European Le Mans series and I and Johnny Palmer get the opportunity to call Ben, you know, taking the fight to some of the established order in Europe. I hope he does that. And we know that Ben is... You know, remarkably attracted by the prospects of coming to Le Mans uh, for another very many years, and and in particular right now, there's a couple of factors around Ben. One is he has the Ford; that's, that's a known known. Two is they've had a terrible year in GTD this year. They're not going to win the entry, so he's got to find another way of actually persuading people to to bring that entry back. So his choices at the moment are going to be interesting interesting politically if nothing else um you know he was a great competitor and i thought the way that he responded to the most challenging of news after the Le Mans 24 hours uh i thought he showed his real class so in terms of what do you do with kind of there already is pro-am um gtlm it just doesn't exist in imsa because you've got a healthy gtd uh class and that's a series of choices we do sit in this remarkable period where there is absolutely there are no two uh, international sports car by that I mean prototype and GT racing packages that have the same class structure there are no two that have the same Asia Le Mans European Le Mans series WC IMSA are all different now that's slightly confusing but it does give people options 
Um, and I think Ben's got a couple of options ahead of him and uh, I, I hope he takes one that means I get to see more of him because I thoroughly enjoy his company always presents a car beautifully always competitive awesome uh, privateer driver absolutely excellent sporting attitude to it mm. on the same on the same topic Supersonic James says great what, name, what, what great name. is a fantastic name is there anything cooking to entice manufacturers back into GT Pro any new ones I think yeah. <laughs> the, the people the, 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 the manufacturers that have come close we know McLaren came very close with the uh, the Senna GTR uh, pure track car with position lights oddly when unveiled at um, Geneva we know Lamborghini have looked at it but the Lamborghini are looking at just about everything including DPI I'm sure they've looked at Hypercar they absolutely looked at, uh, at, um, at GTE slash GTLM uh, we know the same with Lexus we know that Bentley have had a look, Bentley have had a look. we know that Mercedes AMG certainly had a look at the variety of things including DPI back at the very early days um, you could legitimately have a story every week saying that someone's assessing something but the reality is bringing those projects to reality is a long hard road and it has never ever been harder than it is right now it is actually remarkable that it's as healthy as it is right now mm. um, you know we've got two one revised car one new car hitting the track um, in anger pretty soon we're about to see in the days to follow the Corvette C8R for the first time and you know zero doubt there'll be a racing version of that one that we can all go and cheer on wherever that uh, those programs take it um, we've got the revised version of the Porsche 911 RSR now been unveiled and that will make its debut uh, publicly at the prologue for the WC and its racing debut at Silverstone IMSA for Daytona next year uh, are there others around well, you know, OK, we then get into the kind of minnow stuff. Brabham have said they want to come in a couple of years' time. Not with, by the way, the BT62, which I think a few people have got wrong. From Directly from the horse's mouth from David Brabham, I think at Bathurst he told me this, is that the, uh, the GTE plan is for the car that they are planning to follow on from the astonishing BT62. So, you know, a slightly less bonkers performance... Um, applied thing there we're yet to see exactly what Larry Holt and Multimatic pull out the fire in terms of the potential for customers doing race by race uh, in the WC for instance so you know let's not bury something before the grave's been dug um, does there need to be a strategy moving forward there 100% does need to be that um, but neither am I at the point where we have to immediately say it's got to be GT3. Look at how many manufacturers there are. Look at how many teams there are. Because it doesn't. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. It's a fundamentally different playground, and you shouldn't necessarily assume that just throwing them open to GT3 will automatically mean that another three manufacturers say, "Okay, let's put uh, you know ten squillion euro slash dollar into a different form of racing." Remember that GT3 principally not exclusively but principally is customer racing there's racing where it is the customers that effectively fund it with some support logistical um, part support driver support from some of the factories that's principally where that is worldwide and that is it's a massive leap 
to expect that to emerge into for the sake of arguing Lexus to say right let's put a couple of RCF GT3s into the World Endurance Championship in a top level uh, fully funded um, you know uh, GT programme those two strands do not necessarily meet in the middle to an ideal opportunity that gives you double the number of manufacturers in world uh, world class GT racing perhaps the more sensible option here is to renew the drive towards some form of convergence um, and to find a way that the armed camps that sit all around this are basically given the quite correct attention they get for their own commercial interests but also are given the opportunity to open up a can of shut the fuck up and listen to actually the way the industry needs this to go um, with apologies for the language there, mildly. But it, it comes down to it cannot be right that an individual or a group of individual commercial interest dominates the course of a very important part of the whole global racing perspective. Um, it is time for the major organisations involved here to sit down and deal with this like ladies and gentlemen rather than deal with this purely on the basis of their own at times unenlightened unenlightened self-interest that's my view if you want a factory GTE or a GT grid in WC and at Le Mans if you just threw GT3 in there it would be actually a, a remarkably hard sell I think for some of those manufacturers to go to their board and get the funding because they go hang on a minute We've got the IGTC. You're already yep. driving GT3 yeah, yeah. cars all the way around the world, yep. and and we're winning those races. We're not finishing 37th and winning a. Car. But here's the point: I don't know a single one of those manufacturers that would be doing that if it wasn't driving the opportunity to sell those cars. And I don't mean sell those road cars. I mean sell those race cars. That's the basis on which GT3 generally operates. Yes, there's a bit of a brand building thing. And Bentley may be a bit different. And there might be one or two that are a bit different. But ultimately, the principle of customer racing is you're selling race cars. It's the way that Porsche has always operated. Porsche for a long time uh, as a major profit center through its customer racing program, principally with the cup cars. Mm. You know, And that is that is a principle of gt customer racing that has been jealously sought to a certain extent successfully by some of the other major brands you talk to the likes of chris renke at audi he will make it very clear this is customer racing this is not a factory program it is customer racing and we will support them and we want to see that kind of uh, that that kind of grow but ultimately he and audi sport are looking to sell and support the sale of race cars mm. Move on to IMSA, shall we? Oh, if we must. IMSA's pretty good, Graham. IMSA's pretty, pretty good. good. It's pretty good. Um, we've got a, a wide variety of questions, I think, here. We'll start off with um, Def, Defly, on the fly? Yeah, on the fly, on Twitter. He says... Have you got to, uh, on the fly from Defly? Def, well, he's put Def, Defly? Defly. Defly? The fly at on on the fly. Okay, so it's on the fly. Okay, let's we're go gonna, for we're that. Gonna go for that. We're going to go for that. It's at on the fly on Twitter, he says, "Will Porsche win all the remaining 2019 GTM races with their excellent strategies?" And this is, you know, similar to what Ryan Touch has also asked about the fact that um, Porsche's won five races in a row. 
what what do they have to do BOP wise here? Right. Okay. I've read through the questions, and there's probably a number of others you can touch upon here. And there are two or three uh, dominant themes in him, sir. As it tends to be with most kind of uh, racing championships. But one of the dominant themes is Porsche. Uh, brackets. It's not fair slash BOP. Um, strategy, pace, aggression. Blah 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 blah. Am I right? Mm-hmm. And that's not being kind of yeah, yeah. But that's basically where the debate is. Right. Number one, the Porsche 911 RSR is an awesome race car. Has a very wide operating envelope with BOP. It's been very well designed. It is very raceable, and Porsche have an awesome squad of race drivers. It's military level. Yes, uh, awesome squad of, of race drivers in um, IMSA, all of whom's job description effectively says go out there win races. Okay. Yeah. I think we can all agree on that as a, a kind of uh, assessment. No doubt in my mind their strategy has been top-notch. Absolutely top-notch. As for the kind of brackets, it's not fair, slash BMW, slash Corvette, slash, slash, slash. Stop hitting things, number one. Uh, stop hitting things. Um, are we getting to the stage where a car multiple cars are, are, are edgier in terms of the performance envelope where they are in the BOP and are having to be edgier in terms of the chances that are being taken um, are we going to count out driver error in some of those cases you know the reality here is everything I did in starting this point are no knowns about Porsche no knowns including the fact that those drivers are not going to give any quarter they're not they'll race fair fair they're not beyond a bit of rubbing but everybody knows that uh so you've got a choice haven't you if you're going wheel to wheel risk it or don't risk it and that's exactly what porsche would like you to think about um i might firmly point the finger at porsche drivers or a corvette driver or a bmw driver for instance no i'm not what i'm saying is i do grow tired of everything being bop and everything being a single team's fault you don't win multiple races by accident. You don't. There's got to be a massive um, basis of quality in one or a number of different areas. And the reality is, if you want to win an IMSA, you've got to beat the Porsches. Um, and what I find remarkable is, through a, even through the, some of the shorter races, it's there are times when those Porsches will be back of the queue. But you know damn well by the end of that race they're not going to be if they're still in one piece you know you know damn well by the end of that race they're going to have made their way through make way through on pace and or strategy and for me um i've been asked about porsche so i'll speak about porsche the masters of sports car racing you know we see that wherever they race the masters of sports car racing um and to take the fights regularly as they do both in wc and in imsa and for that matter, in GT3 racing, we'll cover over the N24. That was slightly unfortunate. Um, but, you know, the to, to do it the way they do, as consistently as they do, and as successfully as they do, and with a race car, frankly, is just awesome as the 911 RSR is, um, I just think we should celebrate it. Mm. I think we should celebrate the fact that if, you know, they, they are beginning to kind of come to the end of the road with a period of time where outside of the heritage liveries they have we have suffered some of the most boring race car liveries in modern history uh, with Porsche if they can just get rid of that and get back to something all round awesome 
that's not based on an old race car livery, then that right there is a team that you can love rather than just admire. Um, never been a massive Porsche fan. Never have been. It's never been part of my psyche. Massively impressed with the product. Massively impressed with the way they race it. Massively impressed with the way that the um, the drivers over the last 20 years have conducted themselves publicly. Um, not particularly a fan of the rubbing racing kind of culture. But if that's what we're going to get in IMSA, and it sure as hell is what we've got in IMSA, then you'd better be good at it. Mm. I want to have a, a micro soapbox moment here with BOP. Ooh. I want to stand back again. Then, uh, we've got Porsche winning races now, okay? We've won five in a row. Plucky little and the, and, the, and the frustration that I get with sports car racing being my day job is the constant arguing about BOP. It's the same with you, Graham. When, Porsche weren't, when people weren't... You know, winning five races on the bounce in IMSA everyone's talking about the fact that oh it's just cyclical it's ridiculous it's not real racing it's waiting everybody's turn and then the moment Porsche won five races in a row it's well Porsche won five races in a row now it's unfair and blah 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 and they need to fix this for the BOP what do we actually want from racing we need to actually stand back for a moment as a collective and think what do we actually want from GT racing now because it's got to the point where you can't nobody seems to be able to just sit back and enjoy a race anymore you spend every year at Le Mans looking at a field of fantastic GTE cars battling it out all with factory money behind them and we wonder why people leave because when you've got hordes of people everywhere who no matter what happens they find a fault in it oh well this year Corvette didn't stand a chance and blah 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 and then the next time it's well it was that person got screwed and this time uh, they always win it and then it's but they don't ever have a chance and it's just a constant round of negativity no matter what happens Porsche have done a brilliant job here with not the fastest car at a lot of these races in strategising their ways to wins and that's fantastic we should celebrate that because now the rest of the GTLM pad is going to have to up their game. It's ridiculous at this point. GT racing needs to be enjoyable. It really does. And sometimes you just struggle looking at some of these questions to find the enthusiasm about it. Anyway. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Stephen Kilby. <laughs> so box moment there. Um, but you're right. And, you know, look, this is, it's sport. You know, you know, those of you that have... Uh, read anything that Stephen's written and you know anybody that's met him in person will know he's a massive sports fan um, supports a massive variety of truly woeful stick and ball sports uh, teams around the world um, the, he supports the uh, the UK here in uh, what we correctly call football and what you over there uh, in the United States incorrectly call soccer supports a uh, long established team that's uh, known popularly as Tottenham Hotspur Nil um, lots of teams in US sports passionate about sport which is frankly why he was given the, the kind of house room to come and join us in the first place and you're right one of the things about the immediacy of social media of course is that you immediately can release emotion um, whether or not it's in triumph or disappointment and that helps us because it gives us an awesome show with weekend sports cars but it also does give us a real overview of what is tweaking your tails out there and actually you make a good point you make a good point about you know the preponderance of negative in public comments about everything it's not just sports oh, coverage no, it's, it's literally everything it's not even just in sports you know, it's kind of you know the, the level of what was so good so good about what happened at Watkins Glen is we had a moment where more or less everybody said well done to a winner more or less everybody 
And that was just marvellous. Just absolutely marvellous. Because we don't get enough of that. And, you know, for me, you've got to win well, you've got to lose well. And maybe there's some lessons around that. I think you're right. Celebrate excellence. You want excellence? Let's have excellence. Let's not regulate our excellence, which is what we spent a lot of the show so far talking about. Let's have excellence. And if excellence looks like five in a row, you've got to decide for yourselves out there as fans of the sport whether or not you want to continue down the road of excellence or whether or not you actually want to uh, get the guys to hitch up a caravan when they rock up for the next race. Mm. I agree. I agree. So let's just carry on with a question about Masters BOP, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Master's DPI crew fear about BOP with their recent success. Uh, yeah, screw. I've just, just loaded that on them. It's not fair. Um, I think there's a couple of questions about Master. Again, yeah. Master tend to be. It has to be said. Master Christoph Bouchou and the soapbox moment are the three constants <laughs> of the weekend sports cars. The answer here is this: I don't have the numbers. I know what my eyes told me. Um, I think there's questions around why success now, what's happened, even though there's not been the BOP that seems to have affected it. The answer is they've hit the sweet spot. Make no mistake, a vast amount of financial, intellectual, technological uh, investment has gone into the Mazda programme this season. And at some point, when you take out the element of bad luck that's got to pay dividends. At least you'd like to hope that it does, and it would appear to be that's what's happened. Have they got an edge through BOP? Maybe. Maybe they do have an edge through BOP. Likely they've got an edge through BOP, because clearly it's the interest of that championship um, to ensure that one team, one manufacturer, doesn't dominate. That's not the way you encourage other manufacturers to come. Hey, you know, hey, insert name of mainstream automaker... Uh, come and play in IMSA. Okay, brilliant. We've got this fantastic set of rules, which means you can come and spend X million dollars and come and win the big races. Brilliant. Who's in? Well, at the moment, we've got uh, we've got Cadillac with uh, the General Motors. Uh, we've got uh, Acura. We've got uh, Mazda. That's massively impressive. So who's winning the big races? Oh, Cadillac have won all the big races. You know, that's not a selling point, is it? And that that, to almost this point, has been a real concern for me. Now we've got to a different stage. And now, you know, again, we get back into the point you just made, which is you've got some people saying it's awesome, you've got some people saying it's unfair. Let's celebrate excellence. Is there going to be a BOP hit for them? Possibly. Do I think it will render them uncompetitive? No. What they were looking for is the magical mix of speed and reliability. And they seem to have found it. So let's wait and see what the good folks at IMSA decide is the right way forward. Uh, because sure as eggs is eggs, I doubt beyond the congratulatory text messages that I know that uh, John Doonan got from Roger Penske, I bet there was another message uh, from someone at Penske going in a different direction, going, OK, done that now. Now can we talk about performance? Mm. Um, wanted to talk about Junkos we've got a few questions oh, about bless and then we've got on the fly Lance Schneider and on the fly again talking about the Junkos incident obviously happened uh, at CTMP people say about the fact they have a ludicrous amount of bad luck um, on the fly says has the DPI taken a harder hit than it did on Sunday um, and will, will they need a new chassis out there 
Uh, well, I mean, I'm going to uh, immediately divert uh, all questions here to Racer.com, Marshall, uh, whilst not with the freedom of time to fit this length of podcasting, he's still working his nuts off. And uh, I know he's been on the phone to Yunkus Racing, and there's an excellent piece on Racer.com that tells you all the answers we have so far about this. It was a huge hit. Um, you know, the picture of the state of the, the wall post-race, and I know there's a question about that a little later, um, showed how big a hit it was. And yes, that chassis uh, is, to, to a greater or lesser extent, a write-off. Um, has there been a bigger hit? Well, driving headlong into a concrete wall is a pretty big hit. Breaking a concrete wall in half as you do it uh, shows how heavy a hit it was. Um, but the main thing there is it just goes to show, doesn't it, how effective that technology is. I'm not going to get into the politics of DPI, LMP2, but here's a moment to stand and mentally applaud the technical teams behind the development of that technology, uh, both at EMTA and at the ACO, for producing chassis technology that basically means that we can now be talking about a broken car. Mm. That's it. That's as far as I need to go on that one. It's a huge hit, but these cars are astonishing what the, the punishment they will take uh, that means the driver doesn't have to take all of that punishment is astonishing not only we're we dealing with a period of time where we've got the fastest sports cars we've ever had we've got the safest sports cars we've ever had and that means we can now have a different conversation which is about whether young cost racing can make it back to the track rather than stand it at a graveside because that's an altogether different conversation uh, and we're not in that position for that uh, I'm enormously thankful. Hmm. Ben Edwards. Uh, Not that one. I, I was going to say. He uh, said, following me on from MP's point last podcast about the work that Multimatic have done to improve the RT24P to make it faster, can any of this be transferred to the Riley MK30 to improve the base car? Would it need rehomologation? Would rehomologation be allowed? I'd love to see something to encourage more diversity in P2. I think the answer is, I agree with you about more diversity in P2. Um, I think the answer is, it's time is up for that. Uh, we're now you know, firmly into the, uh, the rearward-facing slope of uh, this current iteration of LMP2. DPI 2.0 is on the horizon. I have zero doubt that Larry Holt and the guys at Multimatic uh, have got a firm idea in their mind as to what they want to do on that front. Could you reverse engineer it? You could. Not quite sure why you want to. No, uh, it's too much a risk for that level of investment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure I mean, the, the, the reality is there are going to be other immediately competitive propositions. Uh, I'm not sure why you'd want to. I think it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's. I'm going to give you a slightly different answer to the same question, which is, it comes back to the question I know we, we fielded last week about customer uh, availability for the current iteration of DPI. Um, there's so many unanswered questions at the moment around the the, the detailed direction um, you know I would caution this uh, whenever you see phrases like words rather like could and should might in uh, any kind of reporting including mine um, of these matters it means we don't know the answer it means we don't know the answer it means that we are pulling strands together but there is no firm conclusion and the reality about bits to do with hypercar, bits to do with DPI 2.0, bits to do with LMP2 and what might happen there in terms of the future, is there are far more unknowns in terms of the detail than knowns. And I'd caution anybody at the moment around 
taking an individual piece on the future altogether too seriously as being gospel because there's a lot still up for discussion and that discussion is going on at a pace right now mm. we're, we're going to see something with LMP3 the new breed of oh, yeah. similar to what he's talking about Ben here in the fact that we've got Janetta and Adesh effectively they're coming, coming looking for more customers yep. in a saturated market Adesh are re-engineering their old car Janetta have come a fundamentally new car um, we're going to see what how that does in terms of diversity, aren't we? We are. It's, it's a matter of you know, whether or not the market is going to be attracted by effectively evolution or revolution. No doubt in my mind that the uh, what we're going to see from Duquesne with the uh, the replacement for the Norma and what we've absolutely seen from uh, Ligier is what looked like highly effective evolutions of their current package. Um, the Ades, I think, is an altogether different prospect. I think that is a mildly worked over version of the original car it's effectively the budget solution the Janetta is a different world you know it's a, a big step forward for their package which by the way you know um, they came in early and they still had the fastest car on a straight line right to the end um, but what they had was a car that was overweight as indeed was the was the Ligier to a lesser extent they're overweight because the, the rule book hadn't been nailed down what they've now got is the opportunity for a car that's banged on the weight limit but that builds in uh, the lessons that they've learned with the development programme for the LMP1 car and you can see that in the car and I have to tell you uh, having seen the car in CAD before we saw the car on its wheels at uh, Le Mans um, I was massively impressed I I think it's a a gorgeous looking car Uh, it looks fast so we're now going to move on to a question about GTD from Matt Matt Needert. 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 Is that so? You got dirt on your knee? Yes. If you wiped it on the mat. Yes. Matt uh, Needert. Yeah. 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 Um, this is a long one. So strap yourself in, Graham. This is a long question. I'll, get, I'll just get a cup of tea. Yeah. Okay. I'll <laughs> meet you back in a moment. The by the way, but welcome back to the weekend sports cup. By the way, to my squeaky chair. That's the only reason for that is squeaky chair is normally. Uh, relegated to the left side of the DSC operating base uh, but because Stephen's here he's got the less squeaky chair of the two so apologies for those of you that squeaky chair has been an issue for it's an issue for me as well but not to the extent that it's going to stop we're going to hire some people to sort this out we'll get some people on it (laughs) the 57 Heimricker Racing entry in IMSA GTD has employed a roster of AM drivers who have other driver commitments in 2019 Christina Nielsen in the IGTC Blancpain GT Asia and Anna Beatrice with Stock Car Race in Brazil. Based on calendars for those series, we saw Anna in the car at CTMP, and I expect to see her again for Road America due to conflicts with Christina's other commitments. Christina will have to drive Lime Rock and Laguna Seca due to conflicts with Anna's calendar. Things get interesting for the IMSA round at VAR when Christina has the Suzuka 10-hour IGTC race and Anna has Stock Car round, uh, Brazil round at the Autodromo Jose Carlos. Do you have any information as to who the team might enlist for the AM driving duties at VAR? Better yet, would who would each of you suggest they enlist, given that they would need to be A, female, B, bronze or silver, and C, available that weekend? I'm hoping the situation presents an opportunity for the former IMSA competitors like Cher Holbrook, Ashley Freiberg or Aurora Strauss to break through and possibly kickstart their careers at GT3 level. Um, the answer on uh, do I have information, the answer is no, I don't. Um, I 
have huge admiration for what's happened with that programme. I think it's been a game changer, certainly in IMSA. We've seen the not dissimilar programme, of course, continues in the European Amon series. And I think it's turned people's heads. That's what it's designed to do in a whole range of ways. Whatever the decision is taken, I have zero doubt it'll be taken on the basis of performance. That's the important thing to, to say here. There has been nobody in that car that has, has been there for any other reason than because they deserve to be there based on their performance. The Christina thing, in terms of the calendar clashes, remember, Christina, a rather bad letdown from Porsche at the beginning of the season, was left with literally nothing, and then things started to appear one after the other, which means that she's now in a happy situation where she's got some calendar congestion. Uh, but I'd just say this. You've, you've named three there will doubtless be more um and bear in mind that with Anna Beatrice uh, they've also shown that they're prepared to look beyond uh, the IMSA paddock even the IMSA support paddock for that talent I have no doubt that if we are going to see uh, a new face aboard that car it will be uh, a female driver and I str- uh, absolutely expect it will be a female driver that deserves to be there on the basis of their past and current performance and so it should be it's exactly the way it should be carry on uh, Heinricher Racing um, head turning stuff Alex Eichmiller on Facebook hey, says thoughts on the core sports strategy from CTMP given that Colin Brown qualified on pole should they have tried to have him in at the start and John Bennett in at the finish similar to Keaton's strategy at Le Mans or does the wave by process make pulling a big enough leap for that strategy a complete no go yeah first things first Alex uh, thank you very much for your note midweek it was much much appreciated and I'll be dropping you a line in the next couple of days uh, I know we're all thinking about uh, Marshall and his good lady and uh, offers for help and assistance were much appreciated. Um, the answer here, I think you, know, you we had a quick look through these questions before we started, and you made the very good point. This has been a winning strategy for them in past years. We saw it at Watkins Glen um, last, uh, last year when I was there that they did exactly that, effectively counted on John not losing the lap and that at some point they would get the lost ground back and it almost kind of paid off for them had they not had contact uh, there but uh, it has been a winning strategy for them in the past on the location they did they did it is really simple isn't it when you get an individual uh, occasion when it doesn't work when it just doesn't work where it just falls off that cliff that edge um, that basically makes a ballsy strategy look like it was foolhardy but you're absolutely spot on Stephen it almost paid off in championship winning form mm. for them last year by doing absolutely so I think the answer here is remember who is calling that strategy a core Jeb Brown knows never him. I've never heard of him yeah, yeah. No, never is he related to Colin you think I think that's a massive coincidence. I think it's, a, it's an amazing coincidence that two people with the exact same name and spelling of that name... And come from the same place. Isn't that weird? Are they really? In the same room. Probably only Christmas dinner. Mm. Or Thanksgiving. Apologies. But um, but no, I think the answer there is didn't work that time. Uh, my guess is will work on other occasions. Uh, that's a team that doesn't like losing. Watch them kick back. Ben Tyler says any Great thoughts name. about Ben uh, Tyler about the IMSA resuming the race this past weekend with a shelved tyre wall back, uh, backed by a knocked over concrete wall 
Uh, right. Yeah, there yeah, I have. Um, I have to say, having seen the picture of the knocked over concrete wall uh, post race, I found that quite shocking. Um, clearly, whatever tire defence was there, there was enough impact resistance left in the wall that it could break therefore with the wall not there had there been another impact in that zone um, I'll just say this I cannot conceive of the circumstance where that race would have been restarted for instance in a race that Eduardo Freitas was uh, officiating I can't believe that that would have been the case I think that would have stayed it's a question of imagine the reaction if somebody went off of that corner in a big way after yeah. that. Imagine yeah. what would have happened. Uh, and you know, as with as with anything in terms of race direction, um, there are always you are managing risk. That's what it's about. You're managing risk. You're managing risk. You are. You've got the overview of safety, and um, I, I have to say, having not followed the race live because I didn't I was doing other things on that day and following it up later seeing the picture of the damage to that wall that was a pretty shocking moment mm. Mm. Aidan Grant on Facebook says could Corvette be sandbagging the C7R so that the debut of the C8R will seem miraculous <laughs> <laughs> well I mean this comes back doesn't it to exactly that point you made earlier it's another BRP question but he's no, not used to BRP Aidan not a name I've seen by the way on these pages you're very welcome sir um, no I think the answer is uh, Corvette are racers they're racers through and through and the way in which the remaining Corvettes when we've seen cars out of the race previously I've been racing shows there's nothing been lost there uh, they're not going to give up a season to get a bye next season and neither do I think they should have any concerns that the C8R will be given anything other than an absolutely fair crack of the whip as and when we finally see that car so no I think what you've got is a car that's now very much closer to the end of its career than the beginning of the career uh, it's up against state of the art stuff elsewhere in particular the Porsche uh, that just seems across a race length and a stint length to have something it's got that we said a little earlier it just seems to have been engineered around an operating window that's just more forgiving so no I don't think there's any anything in terms of BOP in terms of what it's been dealt and I absolutely don't think there's anything there about them effectively saying take it easy guys in any way shape or form if you've ever met any of the uh, the Corvette uh, drivers face to face you'd know that would be probably pretty pointless to be honest with you hey Jan uh, Mr Magnuson yeah yeah we'd like you to drive a little bit more slowly I think I know what the answer would be and it's rude in English and Danish um, uh, the, the likes of uh, one of my favourite GT drivers of any period Garcia Antonio Garcia is no that's just not in his makeup. I know from conversations I've had with a couple of people at Corvette Racing that they're now at the point where they are borderline desperate to get the full car a good result because it's had a really tough season oh yeah in Le Mans and in IMSA yeah I, it's, 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 they it's, are going to be pushing it's you know it's it, I, I, again a point we've raised on an earlier show it it does seem that the, 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 the bad luck for Corvette comes to a single car each season and boy it oh boy it's weird isn't it boy it's oh boy weird. is it the four car this time it's a bit Audi like isn't it one in the wall one wins yes yeah I mean, you know, you know, we've had periods in the past where 
even to the extent where there's been the belief that there's been a fundamental problem with the chassis on one car in previous seasons, uh, that the the bad luck and you know that the weirdness of it was was that dominant. Buddy Campbell on Facebook says, second time's the charm. If the ACO and WC would have chosen DPI 2.0, would the OEM manufacturer rules have been relaxed? I think I recall panels wanting to join DPI initially, but being told they were too boutique of an OEM. Williams have relaxed them for 2.0. Don't know. I think it depends who they've got in the room. I mean, what's boutique? Is um, is Lamborghini boutique? Is, you know, I don't know, panels certainly you could say is boutique, making a tiny number of cars. I, I guess it depends on what comes with that package. What do they add to the package? You know, if actually what you were at was you've got two manufacturers and one's edgy, I'm sure, frankly, Panos would be very welcome in the room. If you've got six, five mainstream manufacturers, there's an element where you say, do we need that? Do we need to make that uh, opportunity available? Particularly if you've got those mainstream manufacturers coming in and saying, by the way, a key part of what we want to do here is we want to uh, have a customer base for our cars as well. You know, we you know we've seen what Marshall has written about the potential for Ford coming, and you know how much of that might be based on factory versus customer program. They're the key points. Ultimately, it comes down to a numbers game. What are you going to bring to the party? What does that give the overall package? How does that impact IMSA? How does it impact our current customer base and our aspirant future customer base? Are we going to saturate the marketplace so that if, for instance, I don't know, Kia decided to come with a factory-backed team but but guarantee that they will bring six, six customer cars and that they will have some kind of incentive scheme to make sure that you get some of these privateer teams in? You know, I'm not saying that that's a thing, because it isn't, by the way, for when he gets excited. But they're the kind of things you would have to bring into play to decide whether or not you want a boutique manufacturer to come in with one or two cars. Mm. Got some more questions about DPI too, I know, so I'll continue on that theme. Kevin Perez Federico on Facebook says a few items about last week's podcast. For the next DPI for the next DPI two have they thought about uh, just being the old ALMS prototypes rule set, having alternative fuels and hybridisation so that it keeps all the manufacturers happy? Make hybrid rules to be only rear-wheel drive and no all-wheel drive options to help the BOP and EOT. And couldn't the odd DPI cars become the Pro-Am class cars like in DP1, like DP1, DP2? Uh, the answer is there's a whole range of possibles that you could do with these things. We've not yet got to the stage where there's a firm rule set for DPI2. We don't therefore know what the performance parameters are going to be. We don't know whether or not there's a marketplace for LMP2 being replaced by DPI1. We don't know. Um, For my money, if you can't make LMP2 work in the United States, and I think there are things beginning to come forward that you might start to see a little bit of a tickle forward in those numbers, but it doesn't look like it's going to be an explosion. Uh, For my money maybe that's the next step maybe the next step is that your privateer um, uh, class is effectively a bit like GTM um, is that that's what you get and that's there for three years that that is potentially subsidised by the factory teams giving up those cars Um, we don't know but I think there's a lot of common sense that could happen but there's one thing I've learned about motorsport and all the years I've been covering that Stephen do you know what that one thing is no I don't common sense doesn't tend to be a thing (laughs) 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 so let's wait and see but there's some some great ideas around there 
you know, what you don't want to do is mess with that product. Mm. Um, you know, at the moment, LMP2, despite the best efforts of the teams that are still in there, looks a bit sad. There's got to be a plan. And I don't want them to, to make the mistake the ACO made. They need to make sure there's a ladder. They need to make sure there's a ladder of aspiration for the teams and, for that matter, the drivers funding those teams to see a staircase where they can come in and, and have fun, because that's the idea, and challenge themselves and improve their skill set before they take a big leap. Uh, because whilst you know, we're talking about budgets, you know, whilst DPI is a relatively affordable formula, it's not cheap. You know, nothing about Emsa is cheap. Um, it's, oh, yeah. It is as a national championship because of the scale of the nation we're talking about, because of the nature of the racing with you know a 24-hour race, a 12-hour race, it's a, effectively a 10-hour race and a 6-hour race, plus the sprint races that we have. It's a lot of running. So they, I'm sure, will be thinking about the ladder. And the ladder at the moment has got Michelin Pilot Challenge as well as the, uh, the various one-make championships, the prototype challenge, what is the, the the stepping stone if you're if you like the prototypes between P3 and a DPI going to be? That that for me is a key question for him so moving forward, because that is a gaping gaping hole if LMP2 fails. Mm-hmm. Nate Detweiler, who's a, another listener who um, sounds like could be a NAS, NASCAR driver. There's plenty of them. The, the, We've got almost a full be, grid of NASCAR. You just wonder whether not, maybe maybe it is kind of one of those kind of third or fourth tier NASCAR series. Maybe they just got drunk and thought, mm. I know what we'll do. We'll troll uh, Marshall and Graham. Yeah. They're unlucky. It's a, it's a week when he's not here. They all drive in the Bass Pro Shop Sprint Cup Championship of the World with Monster Energy and Red Bull. That's the one. Yeah, that one. It says Marshall and Graham. The target Le Mans lap time for hypercar is 3.30. LMP2 pole time this year was 3.25. The current gen DPI is roughly two seconds faster than WC LMP2s at Sebring this year. I know the cars usually go faster than the ACO wants them to, but could we be looking at a situation where DPI and DPI 2.0 are faster than hypercar? Yeah. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Again, the one thing I'd add there, by the way, is is don't confuse... You've used two lap times, 3.30 and 3.26, I think was the line time. 3.25. 3.25 is a qualifying time, 3.30 is race pace. The 3.30 target we're talking about is race pace, not qualifying pace. So actually what you're looking at is something that's probably broadly similar, maybe slightly quicker than the current LMP2 car in qualifying trip. Mm. Okay, so we're going to move on to uh, Lynchpin on USCR Reddit. He says, with the current LMP2 series and IMSA only having four cars across three teams, is it time to look at... Um, okay. He says, is it, is it time to be looking at moving a second prototype class to being LMP3 to include, include, increase the grid... Class size, my goodness! If, if not, what can we done to increase the size of the LMP2? Oh, we're, we're He's basically saying, could we replace IMSA P2 with LMP3? No, I just don't think that's a thing for. I don't think that's where IMSA want to be. Um, I think you know, no, as long as IMSA Prototype Challenge is healthy, is the honest answer. The other problem, if you introduce the LMP3 cars into the mix as we see with uh, Asian Le Mans series and Michelin Le Mans Cup for instance and for that matter in the European Le Mans series is you're then dealing with a prototype class that is getting involved with the GT battle Hmm. whereas at the moment it isn't they're quick enough to just deal with traffic 
LMP3s aren't. The new generation of LMP3s might be better on that front, but that's, you know, in EMSA terms, a couple of years away yet. Um, so I don't think that's what they're looking for. It will certainly have been discussed. My guess is that is not going to be the solution that they're going to come back with. I think what they'll be doing is looking at the marketplace and seeing whether or not there's assistance that can be given for anybody in the LMP3 marketplace at the moment to step up. I think they'll be certainly looking to do what they can to uh, inject any kind of health they can into P2, but if not, they will be looking for a plan B. Jeremy Charette on Facebook says, My last visit to NASCAR Watkins Glen 20 years ago left me with one lasting memory. Three hours of gridlock trying to leave the track. I was shocked that when I left the Glen after the six hours um, in the IMSA race, we drove right out. Um, I've had a harder time leaving them all. Empty grandstands, nearly empty parking lot, uh, parking lots. I just don't get it. What will it take to get people out to these races, or at the very least, out to the Glen? Uh, there were certainly people at the Glen when I was there last year. I know there was slightly shaky weather at the start of the weekend, so I, I, I'll be honest with Jeremy, not, not absolutely sure um, exactly what was going on that weekend I just think again it's, it's, a, it's the modern disease it's, it, there is this thing about getting people off their asses and doing things mm. it's a bigger question than just a glare it is it? it is you know, you know we've seen you know um, motorsport worldwide suffer dips in um, audiences we're going to carry on now with Hergeneral questions oh you're good oh I'm really good I'm really good um, we've got one from Two Tool Tony one from Right Turn Lover both about BOP the first one is what is your opinion on BOP and how it, and how it is administered and Right Turn Lover says horsepower numbers in a BOP sheet um, how are the oh sorry what are the BOP is trying to regulate next driver drinks bottle flow rates so much cynicism in one so young I find Right Turn mm. Lover yeah, well, right, okay. BOP, good thing or bad thing? Uh, well, the soapbox moment we had a little earlier from uh, my learned and young colleague to my left, um, I think nailed that one. It, it, it's, it's, do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you like having close racing? Do you not like having close racing? Um, what is my opinion, uh, to told Tony H, um, on BOP and how it's administered? Generally speaking, I think most of the organisations do a pretty good job. SRO, I've got a a very good uh, methodology for making sure that the performance parameters of the cars are broadly speaking where they should be they have on occasion as has just about every other organization that's involved with bop allowed politics small p to enter into things and that's where things go well breasts up shall we say um that's that's not my favorite thing bop fine as long as you don't let external factors um, collide with that. As for what do you include in it, well, I think you're about to find, uh, right, a turn of a meal, mate, that we're going to get rather more involved in BOP uh, with uh, hypercar than we've probably ever seen before in any major racing class because there are going to be more variables. We are talking here about hybrid, non-hybrid, four-wheel drive, not four-wheel drive, Aston Martin badge on the front, Toyota badge on the front, you know, drinks bottles, dream on that might be uh, if you pardon the slight pun small beer when we start to get into where we're going with the hypercar regulations right turn lover also asks of course he does regards to the 24 8 series at Portimao is there any idea why um, that race traditionally has such a short entry list it's a fabulous circuit it's not brutally hot yet quite a few cars um, oh sorry quite a few cars are on the grid um, the, the answer is the 24H series has a bit of an ebb and a flow about it quite often. Remember, 
it's quite a long truck journey down to Portimao. There is that. Uh, depends what the other teams are doing around that, whether or not they've got, um, you know, uh, rebuild time built in for some of those cars. We're also getting to the stage where we're, we're closing in on the kind of family holiday season in Europe, which has another part to play in it. And it may just be this personal preference. The beauty of the 24H series is you can do with that what you will. You can, you can go for uh, one of the series titles. You can go for individual races. In other words, you can pick and choose the ones that you like. And I think that's what a lot of the guys tend to do, which is, well, maybe I've done Portimao. I don't particularly fancy spending the money this time. It's pure participation motorsport. And don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, look, you know, we've had races where there's been 70, 80, 100 cars at uh, Dubai. We've had races where there's been a dozen. Um, it's not a dozen. Uh, it's not a crisis. Mm. Sean Gray, um, and I think this is quite an interesting question. He says, I think, friend, I think I'll be the judge of that. Well, you will, you will. He said, A friend who is a car guy but not a motorsports fan attended the Glen Imza races with me. Have racing organisations ever considered the impossibility of explaining the sport and its classes and rules <laughs> to a new fan without two hours and a PowerPoint presentation? If you're telling me you took a PowerPoint presentation to Watkins Glen, you are an all-round hero, Sean. But the answer is, yeah, we have seen it. I can remember uh, the American Le Mans series used to have LMS 101 on their website. Um, We've seen uh, some pretty good stuff from the WEC uh, to explain the classes. There's there's always graphics available in the the WEC paddock uh, on uh, spectator-facing publicity stands to explain exactly what the differentiation between the classes is how you recognize them what they actually are but there's no getting away from it this isn't formula one Mm. and it's not formula one because we've got four races on the same track and they're four very different races uh i have to say it's it's been a little kind of project of mine to try to get to the stage where we have a readily accessible little database of articles that explain that differentiation. It's it's on my list of things to do. It's been on my list of things to do for about five years. But the problem is, at the point at which you then decide you're going to deliver that, they change something else. But you're right, it's not easy. I think what you've got to do, if you've got someone coming to see this for the first time, is find some level at which they can engage with it. Whether or not it's a car they just think is downright cool, whether or not it's the, the look the sound whether or not it's the absolutely bonkers battles you'll get in class and in traffic whatever that is and i've said it before on this podcast and other broadcasts before my way of doing this with a new newbie is this simple one around the paddock tell them who's who and what's what get them to pick a car in every class mm. and that will keep the interest level up because they'll be keeping an eye out and an ear out uh, for how their guys are doing and it means it's it's it, it, that's part of the sporting thing, isn't it? You know, how many times, Stephen, do you go to, you know, a sports stadium to watch your team lose again, and not go in there with you know a side you're going to take, even if you're there as a neutral? Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's. I think it also goes goes on what we were talking about with Watkins Glen and low crowd numbers. It's got to be accessible. We've got to have a reason to root for something because emotion in sport is what oh, drives yeah. people to watch it. Yeah, yeah, and it is becoming a little bit inaccessible sometimes sports car racing and it's not helped by the fact that we've got things like IMSA and WC being harder to find on TV and streaming with paywalls or changes of broadcasts and things like that and all that adds up to people maybe not 
deciding to go to a race to give it a crap because I think it's a long way to go if I don't enjoy it and I don't yeah. know, how, know, know if I enjoy it or not. Yeah, but I mean, the main thing here is you've actually explained that, Sean. You've taken a mate along and, by the way, hero for doing so. Everybody should do that because, you know what, this is highly enjoyable entertainment um, and it's a quality event at that. But it's um, only highly enjoyable if you understand what's going on. Well, it, it is, but you can still take some pleasure from the event you could take some pleasure from the spectacle you could take some pleasure from that and it's then about finding a window into that because then your knowledge base builds if you can take an interest and you come back and you look back and say that was awesome what about this and what about that what, what about that car what what understand oh blimey i didn't realize that guy drove that car that what that car races at the moment that's really cool blah 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 look at that car and a big crash there you know it's that it's that thing we all do with wikipedia no one ever looks at one wikipedia page ever it's never happened in the history of Wikipedia. What, at one time? Ne- never, never ever. You look at Wikipedia and you read something on Wikipedia and it mentions something that perhaps, oh, blimey, I didn't realise they were in that particular miniseries. Oh, who else was in that? And you read that and you think, my God, was were, were, they in, were they in that with her? And you always end up at a BPR entry list. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, it's that. It's that thing about lighting the fire. The best way to light a fire is to start with a little bit of enthusiasm. Walk around the paddock, look at the cars, talk to the teams, talk to the drivers, find someone you feel like putting a little bit of personal investment in, if only for a couple of hours trackside, or Watkins Glen, six hours trackside, and do that. Um, and I used to I used to go with, with my then very young son, sadly no longer young, uh, still my son, by the way, uh, but um, and used to take a stopwatch. If he got bored, I did that often, because he is a bit crazy um, I used to go to time the gaps for the cars that he was interested in and that kept him very happy uh, which didn't half save me some money on ice cream I can tell you <laughs> <laughs> ok so now it's Stephen, Stephen Gate um, it says the lucky owners of the Brabham BT62 become a part of the Brabham Driver Development Programme Martin Short is among those devising bespoke plans for each owner and overseeing the driver teaching and development will Roll Centre become a part of Brabham's return to the track action uh, well thank you for bringing this one back uh, because this was a question last week and happily I did actually bump into Shorty um, at the Goodwood Festival of Speed and asked him about this one and the answer is no uh, it is simply it's a kind of service uh, as you describe that's what Shorty's doing there is no conversation at the moment about a race programme um, for Shorty I think Shorty is beginning to kind of wind himself down on that kind of front and in fact uh, for the very first time at any event um, he was actually not there as Royal Centre that still exists um, and certainly not as Royal Centre Racing but is actually working for Luke Kendall who's his uh, son-in-law a long-time uh, crew chief uh, for Royal Centre Luke now beginning to take the reins forward and Shorty was there working for him this time but uh, yes involved with the Brabham programme but involved as a service provider and not in any way at the moment talking about racing those cars Ryan Termstra he says anyone else feel like you're rooting for everyone to win a race at this point John Dooning gets moved to the top of the great humans list this week uh, well the answer is I always like to root for people to win races particularly ones that perhaps have had a bit of a bad time of it of late and it's always great when you've seen a team 
You know what? At the level at which you and I and MP report, there are not many bad teams in, in international motorsport. They tend to get found out really, very, yeah. really, very quickly. I know MP had a bit of a, a rant about a particular team in um, in EMSA last week on pit lane. That was one team that perhaps didn't make the cut, but uh, there are very few. But what I hate to see is people trying hard and never quite getting there. And I think that's part of why. The joy that came with that first Mazda win came along with it. But you know, I like to root for the little plucky underdog. You know, it's 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 you know when you've got teams like Pescarolo back in the day, Dyson Racing going up against the might of Audi, you know, against Panos with whatever they were going to throw into it. That was always a really good storyline. It's those kind of efforts. And by the way, that that happens as well when you go into LMP2, when you go into the GTE of areas when you go into gt3 racing you can get in a really good privateer team going up against a factory back team and that's when you start to see some of these talents emerging it's where you know we saw talents like olivier pla emerge danny watts back in the day they came through because they were racing for slightly unfancied you know privately funded teams and just proving to be blindingly quick and Oh, I'd hate to lose that, but yeah, yeah. I, I, you have to maintain a degree, uh, a large degree of journalistic distance when you're in that role. But mm. I'm a, as an enthusiast, it's very difficult not to get, get caught up in the emotion of the fact that you've got the potential for the little team that could mm. actually doing it. Justin, that's JTROC71, says we've seen the Audi GT2 unveiled and Porsche will debut soon. What are the general plans for the SRO GT2 series? Can this series only survive with two makes of cars? And in general, what uh, what will attract man- amateur drivers to GT2 over GTE and free AM series? Is it just because it's more affordable? Uh, affordability is certainly one part of it. The cars have to be sexy, and they are. The Audi, I think, very sexy car. The Porsche... Um, I've no doubt that the driving experience in that car is phenomenal. Um, you know, just about every Porsche car is a phenomenal thing to drive, road or race. And I've no doubt that uh, with the kind of power that's been, you know, under the uh, the bonnet of the um, the GT2 RS Club Sport, it's going to be a bit of an eye opener. Uh, will it only be two makes? I'm sure it won't. You know, we've had Porsche selling cars multiple. Uh, Click announced reckon they've got a car in the works. Click announced reckon they've got a car in the works. By the look of it, KTM have done the same. That's quite an, an interesting one. I think there are going to be others without a shadow of a doubt to follow. I can't see the likes of Lamborghini, Aston Martin, and McLaren staying out of things for very much longer. It'll be interesting as well. There's a conversation I had with someone again at Goodwood about whether or not some of the organisations perhaps fall out the tree on homologation for LMP for GT3, whether or not that might be an avenue for them. So let's wait and see what what emerges there. This one, it's a thing. What, what you, whether or not you agree with it, whether or not you like it, uh, it's a thing. And it's going to play out in its own time. It's going to play out in its own time. It's going to stand or fall on its own merits. What I would say here is, I think this is a racing formula where it is very possible, wouldn't quite say likely, but very possible, that the majority of these cars will exist, will run, but will never race. Will be an ultimate track day mm-hmm. car. That's the kind of marketplace as well. And that, you know, that's an important marketplace for any customer racing organisation. 
having a conversation with uh, the guys at McLaren um, not that long ago, McLaren Customer Racing. Um, now, at that stage, they had sold, I think it's 11 or 12 720S GT3s. That was a little while ago. But about 100 GT4s, the 570S GT4. Now, you look down the entry list of the world for GT4 racing, you won't find anywhere close to 100 570S GT4s racing. So those cars are out there, and those cars are being used. And generally speaking, they're being used for their, their owners. They're going to have an enormous amount of fun on the track. Mm. I, think there, I think there could be an appeal with GT2. And I think we shouldn't forget the fact that what we've got with GT and GT3 are really sophisticated professional bits of kit. And you know what? For some of these amateurs... There is a little bit of a barrier there now with if you want to extract the proper pace out of these cars and compete with the, even the best AMs, you've got to use things like downforce. You've oh, yeah, yeah. For the cars. yeah. And this is a solution where you've got cars that have just got mega power and are maybe a little bit more accessible to drive and, and get good lap times out of. The, the, the principal concerns that I've heard from those that have offered their opinion to me is the difficulty that potentially comes when you have numbers of these cars in a mixed grid with numbers of GT3 cars, which means they're going to be much quicker on the straight in a straight line, but actually rather slower through into through uh, and through braking points and around the turns, which means that you are pushing the GT3 cars to make the pass in the most risky areas of the racetrack. So that's the concern, and that, as I say, it's going to have to play itself out. Rob Chalmers um, is another GT2 question. He says, "Could the Ford GT Mark II become a GT2 for no other reason than it's about 700 horsepower? That airbox looks very similar to the Audi GT2 one." I'd be rem- I'd be astonished if Multimatic haven't uh, done an assessment on exactly that. I'd also be the least surprised person in the world if they weren't having conversations with anybody that's popped up as a potential customer for that car that we saw again at Goodwood. Um, you know, going into a racing spec. Um, I'd be very surprised if that wasn't the case. You know, we've heard rumours of the fact that there might be a GT3 version of that car, etc., etc. We'll have to wait and see. It'll all be done on the basis of whether or not there is customer demand at an affordable price point, not a cheap road car, remember. Mm. Rob Charles also asked um, on the GT2 front, is there, is there any fear from a business standpoint that GT2 could take too many rich AMs out of GT3, especially the ones subsidising big projects and teams? Uh, I, and again, this y- y- the one thing I would say on this front about SRO is they've been pretty good at understanding the uh, understanding the thoughts of their customers that means the customer racing organisations the teams and the gentleman drivers typically what SRO have done in the past is they've built up the strong grids that we've seen in recent years from the bottom up it's entirely the opposite way that the ACO operate the ACO operate by looking at the uh, big factory programs that provides the financial powerhouse that allows them to invest further down the line. That's generally the way things have happened. Not the case with SRO. They've uh, put an awful lot of their time and time investment into uh, drawing together exactly those kinds of people uh, that will build up a basic grid and building on that from there. That has been very successful in numerical terms for them thus far. Michael Schindelbeck on Facebook has another question about the Ford GT Mark II, which you saw at Goodwood. He says, will the new Mark II Ford GT be legal for hypercar? Uh, potentially, as a basis of a hypercar. Potentially it could be. Uh, will we see it in a hypercar? I strongly suspect not. And Kevin Perez Frederico has another question from him. He says, why isn't, why isn't modern F1 British hill climb cars... 
uh, not allowed to compete at the festival of speed and why isn't Porsche showing up with um, it's 9, 9.19 Evo um, at, at festival of speed or Pikes Peak to see how good the IDR is I think the answer came down to com- well, fears about safety um, the reality is that the speeds at Goodwood versus the level of protection offered to a crowd that is in very close proximity I think we're getting to the stage where the dead hand of regulation could have hit that event pretty darn hard quite why it was clearly a policy decision taken to restrict the truly awesomely quick stuff from going for full-time runs uh, up the hill reality is the safety safety um, measures there generally speaking are hay bales i don't think a hay bale is going to do very much about uh, you know a uh, 919 evo snapped out of shape uh, the kind of speeds that we know there you can demonstrate the dynamic properties um, the real world awesome speed of some of those cars and the spectacle of those cars without having to set a time and that generally speaking is what happens at Goodwood the cars still go up they make a hell of a lot of noise they generate an awful lot of tyre smoke people have a very very good time but ultimately the headline hill climb challenge there are few OEM based challenges for that title now if you look at the cars that have been quite close to the top of that the exception rather than the rule has been a factory back program like Sebastian Loeb's uh, efforts like Roman Dumas' efforts for the most part it's been guys in historic race cars etc etc reality is that is not a course that is made for blinding speed in balance with the safety uh, safety provisions that are there remember there was a tragic accident not all that long ago at this finish line of um, the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And in fact, those of you that follow sports car racing online will know uh, Steve Tarrant, uh, Marshall, long, long time Marshall. And uh, Steve's injury, readily apparent injury, was, of course, caused in that accident that killed one of his fellow track workers. No event wants to be in that position again. Mm. Damien Peachman on Facebook says... Um, Bentley's Spa 24-hour liveries. Why does Bentley continue to run a dull regular livery when clearly the cars suit colour like they'll be running at Spa this year? Uh, it'll be a corporate decision. You know, it is as close to a factory team as exists. Um, you know, you won't find terribly many of Bentley's press cars out there in kind of strident um, colours. It's, you know, we'll f- find a few pretty spectacular colours, but the reality is it will be a corporate decision. And uh, I agree with you. I think the, the liveries on the cars look great. We've seen some fantastic liveries before now on Bentley GT cars. But um, do I particularly like the uh, corporate colours on the, the current Bentleys? I think it's actually probably the best livery they've had in a while. I was never a big fan of the white with the green at all. I didn't think that did much for the first gen cars. Uh, but. I do like the fact that we get, you know, we're getting back into this process whereby for the big races, the big teams bring something a bit different. Eric Hark- Harkrudder? You can, I'll, you, go, I'll go with that. I think I'll you apologise in advance. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's guys. exactly how you pronounce Eric, by the way. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, that wasn't the bit I was worried about. Hi, guys. Thanks for the great work each week. Can you tell us more about the finances of owning a GT3 or GTE um, car? You mentioned that the Ferrari is the most expensive. Does it also have the highest resale value? What percentage of resale value is common? 50, 25, 25%? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure provenance comes into it, but 
let's just say I, I did the WC with no major shunts, maybe won a race or two, and podiumed but didn't win Le Mans. <laughs> oh, God. Give us a guess at what I would get back on selling my $1 million investment car. All the best to you, Marshall and Chevron. Right, okay. Um, long and very detailed question. The answer is this. If it's got provenance, then think of a number, depending on what that provenance is. Uh, if it's still currently a car that can be raced at an international level, then of course that keeps the value in the car. Um, are there some GT3 cars out there with limited or no provenance that are no longer eligible for competition that are available for a remarkably cheap price? Yeah. Uh, and if what you want to do is have you know one of the nicest track day weapons you can possibly get, then you could do worse than that. The answer is um, this is this is I guess what it comes down to in terms of where your brand loyalty is. You don't generally tend to lose money on a Ferrari of any description, but you've got to have the money up front to actually pay for it. And there's then a sliding scale with these uh, these brands as to what you do with the car, what the car is worth to start with what happens with the marketplace later race cars without provenance do not tend in this current marketplace to hold their value in any way like classic road going cars do uh, that's where the big money is right now so provenance is massive a massive part of the equation i'll give you an example of this for many many years the cars that aston martin racing um had were not owned by the team for the most part but were owned by private owners and Aston Martin Racing's job on behalf of those owners uh, was to put the provenance on those cars that kept and enhanced the value of those cars that is not an unusual uh, business model at this kind of level uh, internationally there are a number of cars out there that are you know operated by teams but owned by um, you know a particular owner who has placed them with the team either to actually get the commercial value out of selling seats in that car or to add provenance for a car that they wish to keep um, for whatever reason, for either financial reasons or, frankly, just because they love those cars. Um, putting figures on it, it's, it, it really is think of a number. You are really talking about a range here where the difference between success and failure in racing could literally add a zero, in some cases two zeros, the value of one of these amazing pieces of kit. Next up, we got Floodman on WC Reddit. He says, The Mantai Porsche's disqualification for the N24. How did it take two weeks to be released? What post race scrutineering is required for the N24? And he also passes his thoughts on to MP and Chabral. Okay, right. Hey, Floodman. Uh, so the answer on this one is it's quite complicated. Post race scrutineering clearly showed something up uh, that the. Um, because it's a significant finisher, they will have taken time to make sure their calculations and their, their method was correct. That was communicated to the team. They were then given time to consider that before they decided whether or not uh, there would, would be further action. They came back. They said, right, we can see what you found. Uh, we would request that you try with this methodology. Uh, that was done. A similar result was found. There's then an opportunity for the team to decide whether or not they're going to appeal, and they've opted not to. So the time in this was taken by the initial post-race testing. It was taken by the opportunity offered and um, accepted by the team uh, to request a further test with a different methodology, and 
than the bits that fall out from that. So, yeah, 13 days feels like a long time, but if you've got a couple of people in that process that weren't available for a day or two here and there, or a weekend falls, you know, unfortunately within the paperwork chain, that's what can make the difference. But I uh, agree with you, two weeks feels an awfully long time to confirm a podium for an international motor race. Snatch Tractor on WC Reddit says, Multimatic, what do they do and what place do they have in the Mazda DPR project or the Ford GT? How do they divide tasks between Mazda, Multimatic and Yoast or Ford? Um, and Chip Ganassi Racing, respectively? Uh, well, we, we answered this one um, pretty much last week. Oh, OK. Um, so, but no, the reality is Multimatic do pretty much everything. Now, it is uh, very much more a Multimatic engineered effort than it is a Team Yoast effort. There's some logistical support from Team Yoast's uh, US-based effort, but uh, the most everybody involved in the engineering of that car, and certainly the background uh, engineering and development, is a Multimatic effort now Kiwi Chris 1709 says how many GT3 cars is too much at the Spa 24 hours we have 73 cars entered this year which is a crazy number how many GT3s is too much for one race uh, well I think the answer is it's not a matter of whether or not it's uh, it's yeah, for one race it's the, the, the surroundings and it's also uh, the relative pace between the cars were it 70 cars in four different classes that's very different from 70 plus GT3 cars capable of course of the same performance but with a widely differing range of talent in particular in that 73 because we've got how many uh, full pro cars are there this year I think it's just over 30 so you know coming on for half the grid full pro cars um, and with some amateur drivers in similar machinery which means they're not going to be dramatically different in a straight line particularly um, we come back into the GT2 debate here mm. uh, and I think why have I been critical of this it's the experience of history in that race where when it, the grid has been crowded we have seen real difficulties and particularly real difficulties after a caution getting that race safely back to green that's where things have gone badly wrong previously so I hope I'm wrong uh, it feels like too many to me. Mm. And having spoken to a number of the guys who are going to be involved in that race, it feels like too many to them as well. Yeah, it sounds great on paper, doesn't it? Yeah. We've seen way too many big shots for me on that race. Uh, Bunny Last 47 on USCR Reddit says, I thought business-to-business sponsorship meant sponsors gave teams money and teams in return provided additional hospitality, uh, sponsor employees, associates and or customers. Something MP said on a recent IndyCar podcast of his tells me I have it wrong. How does B2B sponsorship work and what do sponsors typically provide and what do teams give in return? It depends what you want, I think is the answer. There's all sorts of ways in which this is operated and we've seen that you know done in very different ways down through the years. It's a great question. You know, we've got... Um, the one I always remember as being a, a, an excellent way of doing this was uh, back in the day in the Le Mans series, RML, uh, who operated with their MG Lolas and latterly the HPDs. Um, and in that instance, um, what would happen is that one of the key uh, groups, Mike Newton's companies, used to invite uh, employees, customers, prospective customers. They would become part of the team for the race weekend, given full hospitality, uh, given effectively team gear it was always quite difficult to work out who was actually a member of the team who was actually a guest um, and uh, they were embedded with the team and what that, that gave Mike and his um, team with his company was the opportunity to uh, have a lot of very valuable 
semi-social FaceTime with some potentially very valuable prospects and customers for his business. You'll see all the sorts of ways done where it's, you know, a less formal, come along and have a great time, we'll spend 10 minutes, but then the, the cold call comes later, presumably, for these things. There's lots of different ways to do it. I love to see it done cleverly. I love to see these things done in a way in which um, they're adding value, not just to the customers, as Mr. Fly, actually. Uh, there we go. Oh, it's a wasp. Lovely. Uh, wasp on uh, the weekend sports cars there. Third uh, guest, third guest. Absolutely. Uh, well, there's a few people in the, uh, in the sports car world that uh, from time to time can drone and buzz around, but uh, there's one that's absolutely doing it for a living. Um, but it, the it's good to see when someone just tries to break the mould. Uh, set in our racing at the moment in um, in fact coming to the WC uh, particularly when we get to Monza and that's a kind of semi-family affair I like to see that one as well where what you've got is you know guests and their families coming to play uh, at a racetrack but uh, loads of different ways the answer is I guess the smart way of marketing these things is you go in for a prospective uh, customer on these things and the first question is what's your objective what do you want to achieve and you build something around that um, and to be able to do that in something like a uh, an international race meeting where the surroundings are, for many people, unique. May, well, many of these people never have seen a racetrack and certainly not seen a race car in anger. Gives you an opportunity to engage with people in a very different way. Before we get onto the fun questions, there's one more request we've had from Jordan Hopwood who says... Can you do a pit walk video for the Spa 24 Hours? I'll have to ask, is the honest answer. Now, one thing I would say here is um, that I need to find out whether or not we're able to do that because uh, filming video on someone else's event is a matter for them to decide whether or not they're actually going to charge us fees to do that. That's not to say they will, uh, but I'll go and ask the question. I think the answer is probably. Um, I should be there from the late Wednesday evening uh, this year. I've got a book launch to go to first. My uh, your friend and mine, um, our ex editor in chief, Malcolm Crackle, his book, and we'll bring a bit of news about that. But uh, likely first things Thursday morning, and I hope to be able to get an opportunity to do exactly that. But I'll have a chat with our friends at SRO um, at the IGTC. But I'm sure they'll say yes. They're lovely people. Perfect. We'll start off the fun section with questions from Ryan Touchy. He's asked me two questions on Twitter this week. As first he... one is favourite Star Wars movie. Of course, it's the Phantom Menace. I mean, come on, come on. And the what? second one is he asked me to what? He, he asked me to explain cricket, and I think I can't explain cricket. Okay, but the best thing for me to the best advice I can give you is go and read the very short but very very good book, which is what is a googly. It's a fantastic there book explaining cricket. I would explain cricket in exactly the same way as I explain opera. Okay, cricket is all the excitement from baseball packed into five days. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, Luke Filipponi on Facebook says. Um, after watching the new GT Porsche 911 RSR at Cooper Festival Speed, how can we convince the ACO to add a rule to the GT regulations requiring that the new RSR must sound like the current one for at least the next eight or so seasons? <laughs> On a related note, what's your all-time favourite engine notes? Ooh, right, well, OK. The RSR, it is amazing. But here's the thing. When you spend as much time as we do with the RSR... You can get to the stage you've had enough of it. I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> I just haven't heard it enough. The amount of times I go out of a pressure and hear it at a circuit and go, God, I've forgotten how loud that thing is. Yeah, it's really, really, oh, really we, loud. We're going to miss it when it's gone. It's oh, we're going to miss it hugely when it's gone. But, you know, you stand in the garage next door to one when it fires up. 
and the entire crew just winces in pain <laughs> having listened to it the last three days. Yeah. Um, so and you know, if you, if you follow um, uh, some of the kind of the uh, sports car racing worlds, uh, you know, Illuminati on social media, have a look at. Uh, I think was, did Camden Thrasher put something? I think he did after Le Mans the day. Uh, the late on in the, uh, the afternoon after the Mon 24 hours they were packing up the cars and uh, there was a bit of a burnout um, contest between some of the <laughs> <laughs> some of the uh, the GTE Pro crews um, it's fair to say in terms of the soundtrack BMW comprehensively lost that <laughs> and the uh, team member because it was one of the uh, team engineers uh, drifting a fully lit up 911 RSR down the empty pit lane at Le Mans late on on race day evening comprehensively won it um, yeah so favourite all time favourite engine notes for me is a top three okay okay top three Corvette C6R is number one right I just love that car which what the GT the GT1 car GT1 car um, the Aston Martin DBR12 my yes. god was that an engine and the third is the engine that was in the A1 GP cars the original ones my god that was loud the Zytec proud oh the Zytec engine under braking unbelievable okay well I agree with you with the Aston Martin um, quite often racing V12s in the modern era are pretty underwhelming there's something about the way in which they, they do that they're pretty underwhelming that one wasn't that one as I've said before um, the team used to have the box at Le Mans underneath where you and I sit um, in the press room at Le Mans and I always have sat there and when that thing fired up it sounded like a bomb had gone off underneath uh, underneath our, our, our desks so that was that one um, very fond of the McLaren F1 um, they're very fond of the, the BMW V12 in that car um, but would say that's probably not a favourite the um, the original Panos uh, GT1 car the GTR uh, another absolutely fantastic sounding race engine <sighs> struggling Jaguar XGR14 the v- I've heard that before. absolutely awesome but there are so many the Salva Mercedes which is the notes. Toyota Group C car which one was it that's the, the, uh, that was the 1992 car that video on YouTube unbelievable that, that's <laughs> fantastic is that the one that's uh, Eastern Creek yes that one's amazing and the Nissan the unraced Nissan P35 as well again big V10 engine cars okay it killed Group C but it did it with a shout yeah, if you're going um, to do it do it properly do it properly and by the way lest I forget by the way I think one of the most beautiful sounding engines of all time the Matra V12 mm. Fantastic. There's a lot of V12 in that. Yeah. Well, um, let's hope the new lot- Aston Hypercar lives up to this. <laughs> well, they tell us it's going to be loud. Well, good. Good on them. Yeah. Why not? If you're going to be stopped making cars that kind of um, eat fossil fuels, do so screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Douglas Holzman on Facebook says, um, I was at the Dodge County Half Mile Dirt Track in Wisconsin on the 3rd of July. To my surprise, Sean Rahal was running a 360 sprint and apparently comes up from Georgia every week. Which sports car driver would you like to put in a sprint car? Obvious. Christoph Bouchou. Um Just because I think it'd be funny. Uh, or Jimmy Brenny then? Jimmy might be quite fun. I'm not quite sure whether or not I've relayed my experience with Jimmy Bruni around the Nordschleifer <laughs> in his uh, Skoda Fabia diesel uh, hire car with his then girlfriend, now wife. 
Uh, but that was that was an eye opener. Mm. So the sprint car thing with Jimmy might be quite fun. Lance Van Toren a sprint car could be quite amazing as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, he could put a safety car sideways. He could put a safety car sideways. But I think Christoph Boucher will go for yeah. just because it would be funny. And the last question is from Jakob Bem on Facebook. He says, would you ever dare to drink Coca-Cola from a Pepsi glass or the other way around? What kind of random madness do you enjoy in your life and are willing to share a positive? That's random madness. <laughs> random madness. <laughs> they think Pepsi Pepsi you're, on, you're on the you edge. On the edge yeah. You're on the edge. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, other than for saying that uh, one, of, one of the things that gets my daughter giggling is uh, our proposition that the, the advertising slogan in the UK for Pepsi is, uh, should be rather, it's Pepsi. Is that okay? Uh, because that's all you ever hear when you go to a bar here if uh, if Coca-Cola's not on, on tap. Random madness. Random madness or random kind of oddness? Oddness Both, we'll go think, for. Yeah. Well, yours, I can tell you, is habitually, you when we run on a DSC road trip, um, you ride up front. You get yeah. you shotgun, don't you? Yeah. And whenever I get back in the car, you've got your... The front seat is like Fernando Alonso-style... Sun lounger. How the hell do you sit like that in a car? Uh, How? I just like and it. why? I like it. It's like you know, we spend so much think time. Think of the think of the children spend, behind you. <laughs> we spend so much time on an economy class plane that when I get the opportunity to lounge backwards, I'm taking that chance. I'll go to spa, and also with spa, that awful journey we do. If you lay really far back, you can't see the road, and it's brilliant. Think of my wife who has to get back in that car. She's standing at the door now of DSC quarters. Say hello, Trudy. Hello. <laughs> Trudy. Trudy Goodwin appearing on the, the weekend sports cars for the very first time. And possibly the last. But um, but no, she has to get back in there. I, I, she, she's cranking the seat up. It's ten minutes. It's ten minutes. Outrageous. While the wacky craziness in my life... I don't. I'm never as crazy as drinking Coke from a Pepsi glass. That's that's just mad. I mean, you do get an incredible amount of enjoyment for rummaging around Hot Wheels boxes in toy I shops. I do. It is a bit creepy. Almost. Is it really? Yeah. It's a childlike. Bit, a little bit. Because you're not exactly 18, are you? No, a bit more than that. Well, you can see. Even uh, 18's you can it. you can see the results of the, those labours around you on the windowsill collection. There are rather a lot of them now. They are taking over. They're taking so. over. They're gradually creeping, creeping towards me. Not a lot, but we'll come back to that one because I reckon that's a great question when we get MP back on in a couple of weeks' time um, for him to just uh, ease away the, uh, the, the the pains of the last uh, last few weeks and months with a little bit of lightheartedness because that always does help. Mm. Boys and girls, thanks very much indeed for another series of absolutely awesome questions. This has been um, a special edition later in the week uh, with Stephen and I, uh, and we've gone through, I think, almost every question we've got on there uh, to kind of compensate for that. Keep sending them in. Absolutely. Keep being with us. We'll try to bring this one forward a little. Next week's show will be from uh, the Cirque de Catalunya in Barcelona. Uh, for the European Le Mans series ahead of the WEC Prologue and that one we may or may not do again from Barcelona we might do that down the line with MP but lots of news and lots of fun and games to come for now uh, with thanks again to our good friends at Cooper Tires with thanks of course to the great people at the Justice Brothers uh, I am Graham Goodwin that was Stephen Kilby get well soon Chabral missing you Marshall Pruitt this has been the Weekend Sportscast goodbye